1: With your host Andrew Donaldson,
2: this is He Tell.
3: Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us here on Herd Tell. This is going to be a different kind of program than we normally do. The Uvalde school shooting, Robb Elementary, the preliminary report has been released. We have it uh, from the Texas legislature where they have done their preliminary investigation into the massacre that happened there. We have the report. We're going to read from it verbatim today. We have been highly critical of the response there we've had a lot of questions of the police we've had a lot of questions of the response the investigation we have been harsh so we're going to read this report verbatim to you and you can decide we're also going to link to it we encourage you to read the full report for yourself so that's what we're going to take the bulk of our time up doing today we talk about all the time we're going to turn down the noise we're going to get to the information well this is the information We're not going to just surmise it. We're not going to do the talking head thing where we tell you what is in it. We're going to read it to you word for word. Now, some of this obviously is going to be a little graphic. Some of this could be triggering to some folks for certain reasons, but this is all going to be right out of the report as we read it. Um, We're going to pick it up about 56 pages into it uh, as the PDF reads. We're going to start with Chief Arendado. Uh, who was chief of the Consolidated Independent School District Police and was nominally should have been in charge and has taken the blunt of the criticism, including from us. Uh, In the meantime, since this has happened, he has resigned from the city council seat he was uh, elected to in the meantime, and he has also been put on administrative leave by the mayor of the city. We will deal with all that later, but right now we're going to just read from the report. We're going to start this is after the shooter's already been in the building. We're going to have to skip ahead a little bit, but there's two important things that we think we need to cover based on our criticism, based on what we understand of the situation here. We're going to start with Chief Arandondo's uh, response here. Then we're going to talk about the response to some of the other police in here, and then we're going to read what the report said, and it's headlined this way, what didn't happen that probably should have. So let's pick it up and start with this very special edition of Herd Tell. I know this is going to be different. This is going to be a lot of raw data and information, but we think it's important enough that we're going to take the time to do it. Here we go. Uh, Page 56. If you're on the PDF version, you can find this at ordinary-times.com. Lots of other places are carrying it as well. Please read the entire document yourself. You owe it to those kids and the situation to know what happened before you go off opining on the Internet. That includes us. So we have read the entire document, and here's what it says. Um, Picking it up, uh, Chief Arandondo's testimony about his immediate perception of the circumstances is consistent with that of the responders to the extent that they uniformly testified. They were unaware of what was taking place behind the doors of room 111 and 112. Those are the rooms that the the, uh, shooters barricaded in. They obviously were in a school building during school hours, and the attacker had fired a large number of rounds from inside the rooms. But the responders testified they heard no screams or cries from within the rooms, and they did not know whether anyone was trapped inside needing rescue or medical attention. Not seeing any injured students during their initial foray into the hallway, Sergeant Coronado testified Heath's thoughts was that there's probably a quote-unquote bailout situation. Chief Arandondo and the officers contended they were justified in treating the attacker as a barricaded subject rather than as an active shooter, because of the lack of visual confirmation of the injuries or other information, Chief Arandondo explained his reaction for not continuing an active shooter style response telling the committee. This is a quote from Arandondo now, "When there's a threat, you have to visibly be able to see the threat. You have to have a target before you engage your firearm. That was just something that goes through your head a million times, getting fired at through a wall coming from behind a blind wall. I had no idea what was on the other side of that wall but you eliminate the threat where you could see it. I never saw a threat. I never got to physically see the threat of the shooter. That's a quote. Back to the report. The barricaded subject approach never changed over the course of the incident, despite evidence that Chief Arandando's perception evolved to a later understanding that the fatalities and injuries were within the classroom were a very strong probability. He effectively conceded his error when he asked what he should have done differently had he known the injured victims were in the classroom. Chief Arandando responded to the committee, I guess if I knew there was somebody in there, I would have, we probably would have rallied a little more to say, okay, somebody is in there. That's a quote. Chief Arandando went to room 109, found it locked and dark, saw a child's head, and realized there were students in that room. Officers Gonzalez asked Chief Arandondo if he wanted to activate the SWAT team, which he confirmed to Gonzalez, then stepped out to make the call. As mentioned earlier, however, the head of the SWAT for Uvalde Police was already in the building. Chief Arandondo then used his mobile phone to call the Uvalde Police Department. The Department of Public Safety supplied the following transcription of this call. These are quotes. Hey, hey, it's Arandando. It's Arandondo. Can you hear me? No, I have to tell you where we are at. It's an emergency right now. I'm inside the building. I'm in the dispatcher has some crosstalk here. Arendando is the teacher with him? Is the teacher with him? Is the teacher with him? Is she in the same room as him? Can you hear me, ma'am? Uh, the dispatcher says I'm right here. Ma'am is the teacher with him? Is he in the classroom? She's in another classroom. She's in 102. Another person probably across from her. Arendando a court. Okay. We hear him. He's in the room. He's got an AR 15 and he's shot a lot. He's in the room. He hasn't come out yet. We're surrounded, but I don't have a radio. Dispatcher confirms the SWAT location now, and then Arenda replies yes, and they need to be outside of the building prepared because we don't have enough firepower right now. All we have is pistols, and he has an AR-15. Dispatcher asks if you want to stay on the phone with me as long as you can. I am, but I'm going to drop it when he comes out of the doors again, all right? The Dispatcher over says that 401 has a shooter in 111 or 112. Those are the classrooms he was in. He was going to be armed with a rifle. He repeats a request for SWAT by the funeral home, which is outside an adjacent building. So, so I need you to bring a radio for me and give me my radio for me. I need to get one rifle. Hold on. I'm trying to set him up. I'm trying to set him up. This is a transcript from the 911 call. Now the committee report continues. By 1142, Constable Johnny Field has arrived on the north end of the hallway. Constable Field saw Chief Arandando on the other end and held up his phone. Chief Arandando called and began communicating with him by phone as the primary current contact on the north end. They discussed the need to evacuate the children from the building, and Chief Arandando decides to accomplish that by breaking windows. Officers Gonzalez and Page proceed to start breaking classroom windows. And helping to evacuate students from the classroom, Chief Arandondo found another unlocked classroom on the east side of the hallway with a teacher and students locked inside, and he told them to stay down. Meanwhile, Sergeant Coronado had exited the building through the south door and made his own report by radio. He requested shields and flashbangs from the police department, and he asked for helicopter support and ballistic shields from the Department of Public Safety. Agreeing with Chief Arandondo's assessment, he reported the shooter was contained, that's in quotes, inside the building and barricaded in one of the offices. Dispatch asked Sergeant Coronado if the classroom doors were locked. He responded he was not sure, but they had a Halligan tool to break it. Radio traffic indicated the attacker was in Mrs. Morales' classroom, that's room 112, and asked whether the students were inside. In response, Sergeant Coronado requested a mirror to look around corners. A voice on the radio replied that the class should be in session. After the initial respondents took fire from the attacker sergeant coronado remained outside the building on the southwest side for a total of approximately 30 minutes regularly advising other officers to be careful about potential crossfire or a fatal funnel in the hallway and assisting the evacuation of students and teachers through the windows on the west side of the building when some newly arrived responders appeared to suggest that the officers should clear out of the south side because The United States Border Patrol Tactical Unit, the BORTAC team, that's the special team that ended up actually taking the shooters down at the end. Responders were operating on the opposite end. Sergeant Coronado responded, the chief is in there and the chief is in charge right now, meaning Arandondo, suggesting both that Chief Arandondo was in control and in communication with the other side of the building, which we now know he was not. While Sergeant Coronado was outside, his body camera recorded several people commenting on the need to find a master key to the classrooms. Once Sergeant Coronado returned inside the south side of the hallway, he found Chief Arandando on his phone also asking for a key, which was a primary focus of his intention for the next 40 minutes. Chief Arandando personally tried all of one large set of keys brought to him, and when Sergeant Coronado cautioned him to stay clear of the hallway and the fatal funnel, Chief Arandando responded, just tell him to F and wait. Much of this time was spent by Chief Arandando on the phone with Constable Field he made issued a series of additional requests for equipment and support, including snipers, a master key, and breaching tools, repeatedly referencing the need for a key and breaching tools before they could attempt to enter the classroom with the attacker while waiting. He also periodically attempted to communicate with the attacker in English and Spanish, including immediately after the four shots were fired from inside the classroom at 12.21 p.m. Despite all the discussion of breaching tools, Captain Chief Arandando, testified no one made him aware when one arrived in the building. Chief Arandondo prioritized making certain all the classrooms of the building were clear to the teachers and students, including evacuating room 109, where the attackers had shot Miss Avelia through the walls. In the context of this evacuation, Chief Arandondo responded that, quote, people are going to ask why we took so long, end quote. And in apparent reference to the ongoing evacuation, that they were trying to case of, quote, The rest of the lives first, in addition to seeking keys and breaching tools, the other predominant theme of the south side of the building was waiting for the Bortac to breach the classroom. Chief Orendando discussed with Constable Field various means of attempting the breach such by using a sniper or flashback to kill or distract the attacker. Beginning at 1230, various officers entered the south doors and walked by Chief Arandando and Sergeant Coronado, stacking up south of room 111-112 and on the west side of the hallway, anticipating a move to breach the classroom. At 1245, somebody commented that the Ranger had a set of keys that was being tested. And finally, at 1250, a team of officers made entry into the classroom and killed the attacker, which officers stationed on the south side of the port, Hallway quickly falling in behind them and entering rooms 111 and 112. Chief Arundondo testified that the only direction he gave to the north side of the building through Constable Field was that for them to evade the kids and to test the keys before trying to go into the classroom with the attackers. He said he did not make any decision for Bortac to breach the classroom. That's what happened with Chief. Arendando. We're going to talk about what happened on the north side of the building. That's where they actually did stuff and got in the classroom. And then we're going to deal with what didn't happen in another section of this report. More from the Uvalde school shooting Rob Elementary report on Hertel verbatim. Reading it straight to you unfiltered for you to make up your own mind right after this. Welcome back to her Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. We are continuing to read from the Robb Elementary uh, report that the Texas Legislature Special Committee has assigned. That's the Uvalde school shooting, the massacre that occurred there regarding the police response there. We are reading it verbatim, unfiltered and without commentary. We're just reading the report directly to you, some of the uh, most important parts of it. Now, it's a large report. We have linked to it at ordinary-times.com. Please read the entire thing. Not just our little section of it. We just talked about Chief Arandondo, which has come under a lot of criticism, including from us. We've just read a portion about what he did. This is now a section on what was going on to the north side of the building, or the opposite side from where Chief Arandondo was. Rewinding the clock. This is from the report verbatim. We're just reading it straight to you. Rewinding the clock to the point at which the attackers shot at the initial responders in the building There were three Uvalde police officers who led the way down the hallway from the north side of the building. Lieutenant Martinez, followed by Sergeant Canales, followed by Officer Landry. Building fragments hit Lieutenant Martinez and Sergeant Canales as the attackers shot into the hallway and all three officers retreated to the north end. By the way, this is the video that was released. That's the north end. That's what you see where they come back down the hallway and then the stuff that happens after that. As Sergeant Canales ran out, his body camera documented the presence of multiple officers in the north hallway and a Department of Public Safety trooper stationed at the door as he exited to the west. Sergeant Canales reported, quote, we got to get in there, and he made a phone call requesting more help. Givaldi police officer Landry, who had been third in the line on the north side behind Lieutenant Martinez and Sergeant Canales, also exited the building on the west side, then moved to the south side of the building where he began helping to clear classrooms and waiting for specialized teams to arrive. After the initial shock of taking gunfire, Lieutenant Martinez returned south back down the hallway. Following active shooter training, he began to advance again on rooms 111 and 112 in an evident desire to maintain momentum and say to stop the killing. That's in quotes. But this time, no other officers followed him. Several law enforcement officers suggested to the committee that if officers had followed him as backup, Lieutenant Martinez might have been made it back to the classroom doors and engaged at that time. Later, he helped to evacuate children from classrooms and moved to the south side of the building and ultimately as part of the stack of officers on that side of the hallway where Bortak finally breached the classrooms. Pausing here, that's the piece that we read in the last segment. Back to the report. The school surveillance cameras installed when the north-south hallway intersects the east-west hallway at the north end of the building captured the moment and activity of law enforcement officers on the north side of the building. From their perspective, the period from 11.37 a.m. when Lieutenant Martinez, Sergeant Canales, and Officer Landry made their retreat from the attacker's initial gunfire to the 12.50 p.m. when a bortac led stack finally made an entry into the classrooms, saw the movement of dozens of police officers from a variety of law enforcement agencies in and out of the north hallway positioning and preparing themselves for the eventual breaching effort. This is the video we've talked about before. This is the 77 minutes of video that has been widely released. At first, responders from the Uvalde Police Department, including the active chief of police on that day, Lieutenant Mariano Pragas, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this name, dominated the north end of the building. By the way, that individual, uh, Lieutenant Mariano Pragas, has also been now placed on administrative leave. Lieutenant Pragas, who was one of the earliest responders, testified that he was never in communication with Chief Arendondo. And that he was unaware of any communication with law enforcement officers on the south side of the building. That's the first section we read to you. He told the committee he figured that Chief Arandondo had jurisdiction over the incident and that he must have been coordinating the law enforcement response and that the Uvalde police were there to assist. He did not coordinate with any of the other agencies that responded, such as the Uvalde Sheriff's Office, the Department of Public Safety. Lieutenant Proggas did receive a phone call from the chief of the Uvalde police, who was out of town on vacation. <laughs> Who called to tell him to set up a command post right away? Lieutenant Progress testified that he went to the back of the funeral home to start a command post, that the funeral home provided an office, and that he went back outside to try to help with what was going on. This did not result in the establishment of an effective command post. Lieutenant Progress was presented present when the Uvalde CISD, that's Consolidated Independent School District, uh, that's who Chief Arendondo's over, officer Ruben Ruiz, entered through the west door and stated, She says she is shot. We're going to pause here. Ruben Ruiz is the officer that's been in the widely circulated photo who is looking at his phone, the one with the Punisher logo. It's his wife, one of the teachers who was shot. He was in communication with her. He knew that she had been shot. That is the context of those images of him looking at his phone. We'll come back to this later if we have time. Officer Ruiz was escorted away from the building. Lieutenant Pragas was also testified. He heard on the radio about 9-11 calls That had come from inside the classroom, and he told the committee that it was his understanding that officers on the north side of the building understood that there were victims trapped in the classrooms with the attacker. According to Lieutenant Progress, while nobody said it, the officers on the north side of the building were waiting for other personnel to arrive from the public Department of Safety or BORTAC, which would be better equipped like rifle rated shields. As responders continued to arrive on the scene, officers stationed outside the building directed them to assist in the perimeter. Special Agent Luke Williams of the Department of Public Safety testified that upon his arrival, he disregarded a request that he assist at the perimeter, and instead he proceeded to the east door in the north side of the building. He began to clear rooms along the north hallway and found students hiding in the boys' restroom. The students had his legs up so as not to be seen in a stall, as he had been trained to do. Good for this kid paying attention. And he demanded that Special Agent Williams confirm he was with law enforcement, which he did by showing his badge under the stall. Way to go for this kid knowing what to do in situational awareness. They need to teach what this kid did to everybody. As special agent Williams then approached the intersections of the hallway from the east where a group of officers was positioned. And the west side intersection with the weapons pointed to the south, he heard somebody say, y'all don't know if there's kids in there. Special Agent Williams interjected, if there's kids in there, we need to go in there. That's a direct quote. Any officer who had been positioned in the hallway responded to Special Agent Williams that whoever was in charge would figure that out. Boy, we're developing a theme here, folks. Another officer pointed out to him that his position on the east side of the intersection was creating a crossfire situation relative to the group of officers pointing their weapons towards rooms 111 and 112. From the south, Special Agent Williams departed to continue clearing other classrooms. Between 11.52 and 12.21, remember the breach happens at 12.25. The surveillance video shows four different ballistic shields arriving at the building. Importantly, only the last shield furnished by the U.S. Marshals was rifle rated The committee heard evidence that the rifle rated shield was the only one that would have provided meaningful protection to the officers against the attacker's AR-15 rifle. The committee received no evidence that anyone told Chief Avendano or anyone else on the south side of the building about the arrival of the rifle-related shield. Just before 12.30 p.m., there was a burst of activity on the north side. A group of officers moved past the position previously established at the north end of the intersection, and they began to establish a stack close to the north side of rooms 111 and 112. Fused from the south, Corna- Sergeant Coronado announced the arrival of Bortac. Another group of officers began to stage medical triage on the east side of the north hallway. This indicates that Bortac had lightly likely assumed tactical command of the incident at this time which they would have done before entering the room bortac acting commander paul guerrero came to the north side of the building upon his arrival at rob elementary in the post-incident statement he said he was advised that quote that the subject was possibly shot multiple children was still in the classroom end quote he questioned surveillance throughout the black black he, questioned, he requested surveillance to the back windows of room 111 and 112 to possibly deploy gas as they entered. He was made aware of receiving a Halligan tool from his car. The school surveillance cameras showed the arrival of the Halligan tool, breaching tool, at 12.35 p.m. The committee received no evidence that the arrival of the breaching tool was ever communicated to Chief Arandondo or anyone else on the south side of the building, according to a statement. Commander Guerrero attempted to pry open the door in the hallway to see if the Halligan tool would work. He determined it would take too long and would dangerously expose an officer to gunfire. He observed the classroom door had multiple holes consisting with bullet holes, and he did not want to expose or jeopardize the safety or lives of his officers trying to pry the door open. Commander Guerrero then obtained a master key from the office of the scene. We're going to take a quick break here. Commander Guerrero is going to continue to try the doors. Then we're going to have the actual breaching of the doors. We are reading directly from the Uvalde Robb Elementary report. We're reading it verbatim without further comment, and we will continue to do so on her tell right after this. <laughs> back to Hurtel, we're continuing to read from the Rob elementary report we're reading it verbatim this is information for you to process for you to decide for yourself please read the entire report it is available and we have linked to it at ordinary-times.com other outlets have it as well as well as the 77 minute video which depicts a lot of what we're describing we're continuing to read we are picking up where the commander of the BORTAC team uh, is starting to try to get into the classroom commander Guerrero uh then obtained a master key from the office at the scene as he made his way to the classroom door an officer advised him to try it on another door first he attempted to open another door along the hallway and it did not work he saw a few border patrol agents and advised them to start setting up for a triage situation of mass casualties he then received a second master key which he successfully used to open another door working with the Borak team bortac team Commander Guerrero and another agent used the rifle rated ballistic shield to give him cover as he opened the classroom door. Commander Guerrero placed the key in the room to door 111 and opened the door. Colonel Guerrero's contemporary report stated that he unlocked the door, but as explained above, there's reason to question whether the door was actually locked or not. The attacker was standing in front of the closet in the corner of room 111, and he fired his rifle as the stack of officers coming through the classroom door. The officers fired on the attacker, killing him. The committee has been advised that none of the Border Patrol agents involved in opening the door were wearing activated body cameras. The report goes on to display what happened outside at this time. As mentioned in the narrative above, there were important events happening outside the north and south ends of the building, in part due to difficulty in maintaining radio communications within the building. Not everyone inside the building perceived all of this information. A police radio communication of unknown origin stated at 1156 a.m., quote, it is critical for everybody to let PD take point on this, end quote. None of the witnesses interviewed by the committee indicated any knowledge of this communication above what it meant by PD taking point on this. The general consensus of witnesses interviewed by the committee was that officers on the scene either assumed that Chief Arandando was in charge or that they could not tell that anybody was in charge of the scene described by several witnesses as chaos or a, quote, cluster. There was a series of phone calls with a student inside room 112 initiated by the student calling 911 at 1203. Radio traffic communicated to those officers who could hear it that in fact a student had called from within the classroom. Several witnesses indicated that they were aware of this but not Chief Arandondo. The committee has received no evidence that any officers who did learn about the phone calls coming from room 111 and 112 acted on it to advocate shifting to an active shooter-style response or otherwise activating a more urgently need to breach the classroom. The heading of this section, what didn't happen in those 73 minutes. Reading from the report, a major error in the law enforcement response at Robb Elementary School was the failure of any officer to assume and exercise effective incident command. Uvalde police officers Responding to a vehicle wreck and shots fired appeared to have arrived first on the scene, which would make them one of the initial commanders. Yuvaldi, Consolidated Independent School District Police Chief Arandando, quickly arrived as the incident moved as the law enforcement response evolved. This made him a natural person to assume command over an incident as it developed. But Chief Arandando does not consider himself to have assumed incident command. He explained to the committee, this is a direct quote. When you're in there, you don't title yourself. I know our policy states you're the instant commander. My approach and thought was responding as a police officer, and so I didn't title myself. But once I got in there and we took the fire, back then I realized we need some things. When I've got to get in that door, we needed an extraction tool. We needed those keys. As far as I'm talking about the command part, the people that went in, there was a big group of them outside the door. I have no idea who they were and how they were walking in or anything of that kind. I wasn't given that direction there's a break in the commentary here but this is still a quote you can always hope and pray that there's an incident command post outside i just didn't have access to that i don't know anything about that it's a direct quote from arndando other people continuing with the report other people could have assumed command including the next people the uvalde's cisd pre-assigned line of command for active shooter response or others on the scene with more experience or training Alert training teaches that any law enforcement officer can assume command, that someone must assume command, and that the incident commander can transfer responsibility as the incident develops. That did not happen at Robb Elementary, and the lack of effective incident command is a major factor that caused other vital measures to be left undone. Again, we're reading from the Uvalde uh, school shooting report, the Robb Elementary report from the Texas Legislative Committee. We're reading it verbatim here. That did not happen at Robb Elementary and the lack of effective incident command is a major factor that caused other vital measures to be left undone. Also, the misinformation reported to the officers on the outside likely prevented some of them from taking more active role. For example, many officers were told to stay out of the building because Chief Arandondo was inside a room with the attacker actively negotiating, which we know was not true. Responders did not remain focused on the task of, quote, stopping the killing as instructed by active shooter training. They never attempted to breach the classroom before Bortak accomplished the entry. Chief Arandando explained, this is a direct quote again, I knew those doors, those doors open outward. They're thick, heavy doors with a metal frame. Most people are used to as police officers, you're going to a resident and you kick in the doors. That just was a common thing in our business. You don't have that option here. I knew that a ramrod, which I call a buddy, which is, you know, the heavy pipe with two handles, that wasn't going to work. And that's why we were calling for an extraction tool and keys. Back to the report, but nobody ever checked the doors of room 111 and 112 to confirm they were actually locked or secured. Room 111 probably was not. Chief Arndondo's search for a key consumed his attention and wasted precious time delaying the breach of the classroom. Nobody called Principal Gutierrez, to ask about the location of a master key. She had a key, and the head custodian had a key, both on site. Yet, despite all the efforts to find a key, nobody called her. Although discussed on both the south and north sides of the building, nobody ever created a diversion on the east side of the building, where rooms 111 and 112 had windows. And although it should not have been proved necessary had responders remained focused on, quote, stopping the killing, as soon as possible... As the incident dragged on, nobody tasked any law enforcement officer to establish reliable communication between the south and north sides of the building and with the resources outside the building. Radio communication was ineffective, so someone else was needed for decision-making to receive critical information, such as the fact that the victims had called from within the rooms with the attackers. To the extent that there was confusion among officers about whether the scenario was an active shooter or a barricaded subject, Information that there were wounded victims in the rooms would have clarified the existence of an active shooter scenario. In total, 376 law enforcement officers responded to the tragedy at Robb Elementary School. There's a breakdown here. We will skip that. You can read it for yourself. Continuing with the report, the committee's chief goal from the very beginning has been to provide accurate information from dependable sources. The public's need for the accurate information only has intensified as we have investigated the facts surrounding the tragedy. Problems with the flow of information have plagued government, media, and public discussion about what has happened at Robb Elementary from the outset, damaging public trust, inflicting a very real toll on the people of Uvalde, and creating imperative to provide a reliable set of facts. We will continue to read from the Uvalde report of the Robb Elementary school shooting. Right after this on her too. back to Hertel. We continue to read from the Robb Elementary report, the Texas Legislative Committee's report on the Uvalde school shooting. We have reached the part of the report now. We're skipping around a little bit for time and context. These are the factual conclusions of the committee. This is page 73 of the PDF, 78 of the actual document reading from the report. Based on the foregoing information developed through its investigation, the committee has drawn the following preliminary conclusions uvalde cisd and rob elementary communication and lockdown alerts. poor wi-fi connectivity in rob elementary likely delayed the lockdown alert through the raptor application once the alert was sent not all teachers received it immediately for a variety of reasons including bad wi-fi coverage whether the teacher used the raptor phone application as it logged through the web browser and whether the teacher was carrying a phone at the time no one used the school's intercom as another means of communicating the lockdown as a result, not all teachers received timely notification of lockdown, including the teacher in room 111. The frequency of less serious bailout-related alerts in the Uvalde diluted the significance of the alert and tampered everyone's steadiness to act on alerts. In response to the May 24, 2020 lockdown alert at May Rob Elementary, the initial reactions of many administrators, teachers, and law enforcement responders that it was likely a less dangerous bailout. Robb Elementary had a securing, a reoccurring problem with maintaining its doors and locks. In particular, the locking mechanism on room 111 was widely known to be faulty, yet was never repaired. The Robb Elementary principal, her assistant responsible for entering maintenance work orders, the teacher in room 111, other teachers in the fourth grade building, and even many fourth grade students widely knew of the problems with the locks on the door to room 111. Nevertheless, no one placed a work order to repair the lock, not the principal, the secretary, the teacher, the room 111, or anyone else. Rob Elementary School had a culture of noncompliance with safety policies requiring doors to be kept locked, which turned out to be fatal. Teachers of Rob Elementary often used rocks to prop open the exterior doors. The west door to the west building was supposed to be continuously locked. When the attacker approached on May 24, 2022, it was unlocked and he was able to enter the building there. If the door had been locked as policy required, the attacker likely would have been slowed for some period of time as he either circumnavigated the, ve- the lock or moved to another point of entry in the building. Teachers at Robb Elementary commonly left interior doors unlocked for convenience, and they also used magnets and other methods to circumvent door locks. The doors to room 111 and 112 are required to be locked at all times, and in the lockdown, The teachers were supposed to check that they were locked. The teacher in room 112 was seen locking her classroom door after the lockdown alert. The door to room 111 probably was not locked. The teacher in room 111 does not recall hearing the lockdown alert. The door required special effort to lock it. As previously noted, there was a maintenance issue, and the teacher has no memory of locking the door. The attacker apparently didn't have to take any action to overcome a locked door. Before entering the classroom, if the door to room 111 had been locked, the attacker likely would have been slowed for some time as he either circumvented the lock or took some other alternate course of action. The attacker had an unstable. This is information about the attacker. Now, the attacker had an unstable home life with no father figure and a mother struggling with a substance abuse disorder. The attacker's family moved often and lived in relative poverty. The attacker developed sociopathic and violent tendencies, but he received no mental health assistance. Various members of the attacker's family were aware during the time leading up to the attacker's 18th birthday that he was estranged from his mother and that he had asked for help in buying guns through straw purchases that would have been illegal. Family members uniformly refused to buy guns for him. During the week before between his 18th birthday and the events of May 24, 2022, the attacker expressed suicidal ide- identifications to a cousin who talked to him and did not believe he was an imminent suicide risk. During the week between his 18th birthday and the events of May 24th, the attacker's grandparents and other family members became aware of the attacker had bought guns. The grandparents demanded that the guns be removed from their home. The attacker struggled academically throughout his time in school. The school made no meaningful intervention with the attacker before he was involuntarily withdrawn for poor academic performance and excessive absences. The attacker had few disciplinary issues at school, but he was suspected once for a fight. Due to his excessive absences, there apparently was no information actually known to the school district that he should have been identified this attacker as a threat to any school campus. Law enforcement, there is no information actually known to local Uvalde law enforcement that should have identified this attacker as a threat to any school campus before the May 24, 2022 shootings. Some of the attacker's social media contacts received messages from the attacker related to the gun suggesting that he was going to do something they would hear about in the news and even referring to attacking a school. Reports suggest that some social media users may have repeated and reported the attacker's threatening behavior to the relevant social media platforms. The social media platforms appear to have done nothing to respond to the restrict the attacker's social media access or report his behavior to law enforcement authorities. The services used by Uvalde's Consolidated Independent School District to monitor social media for threats did not provide any alert of threatening behavior by the attacker. There was no legal impediment to the attacker buying the two AR-15-style rifles, 60 magazines, and 2,000 rounds of ammunition when he turned 18. The ATF was not required to notify local sheriffs of the multiple purchases. We're going to take another break here on Herd Tale. Again, we're reading from the Robb Elementary report from the Texas Legislative Committee, the Uvalde school shooting. We're reading it verbatim. We're just giving you the raw information. That's how we're going to turn down the noise on this very tough issue. When we come back, we're going to finish up by the law enforcement responses, the conclusions that the committee drew. It's some damning stuff. It's hard to read, but we must bear witness to this. More from the Uvalde school shooting special report on her tell right after this Welcome back to her tell uh, we've reached the part of the report that is uh, the conclusions of the committee that investigated and the law enforcement response from the report. There was no law enforcement officer on the Robb Elementary campus when the attacker came over the fence and towards the school. Citizens at this scene quickly alerted law enforcement about a vehicle accident, a man with a gun and shots fired near the Robb Elementary campus. As initially reported by Uvalde Police Dispatch and understood by most initial responders, the incident began off campus as one would have been in the jurisdiction of the Uvalde Police Department. Uvalde Police officers were among the first, if not the first, law enforcement respondents on the scene as a man firing a gun moved towards Robb Elementary School. As the situation developed and responders received more information, it became apparent that the threat moved onto the school campus and within the jurisdiction of the Consolidated Independent School District Police Department. Multiple law enforcement officers arrived at Al- Rob Elementary within a few minutes of the attacker coming over the fence. As Uvalde Police Department officers saw a person dressed in black and thought it might have been the attacker. From a distance of over 100 yards, that officer requested permission to shoot. Subsequent analysis suggested that the person in black was a sh- school coach, and the officer did not have an opportunity to stop the attacker by shooting him before entering the west of the building. Wow. Rob Elementary School coach Yvette Silva acted heroically and almost certainly saved lives by alerting the school to the attacker's advance. Most fourth grade classes successfully locked down as a result of her quick response. After entering through the unlocked west door that we've already talked about, the attacker had about three minutes in the west building before first responders arrived at the building, including approaching two and a half minutes during which the attacker is estimated to have fired over 100 rounds of ammunition. The initial responders to the West building heard gunfire and encountered a hallway with a fog of drywall debris, bullet holes, and empty rifle casings. They converged on rooms 111 and 112, which they identified as the location of the attacker. They acted appropriately by attempting to breach the classroom and stop the attacker. The attacker immediately repelled them with a burst of rifle fire from inside the classroom. Pausing here, this is the video This is the point where you see them running back down the hallway and taking up a position back. That's what just happened was the shooter taking shots at them. The responders immediately began to assess options to breach the classroom, but they lost critical momentum by treating the scenario as a, quote, barricaded subject instead of with the greater urgency attached to the active shooter scenario. It actually was an active shooter scenario because the attacker was preventing critically injured and wounded people from getting out and getting medical attention. An active shooter scenario differs from the barricaded subject scenario in what law enforcement officers respond to the active shooters are trained to prioritize the safety of the innocent victims over the safety of law enforcement responders. At first, the first responders did not have reliable evidence about whether they were injured victims inside rooms 111 and 112. Although circumstantial evidence strongly suggests that the possibility, including the fact that the attackers had fired many rounds inside the classrooms at the time, When students were in attendance, the alert training, quote, reliable evidence standard does not align with the reasonable officer standard applied to alert in its preliminary and partial report to the Robb Elementary shooting. Uvalde's Consolidated Independent School District active shooter policy called for Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District Police Chief Arondondo to be the incident commando if an active shooter response. Chief Arondondo was one of the first responders to arrive at the West Building. In the initial response to the incident, Chief Arandando was actively engaged in the effort to stop the killing. That's a quote up to the point when he was the attacker was located in room 111-112 and the attacker fired on the responding officers. By this time, there were dozens of officers on the scene, but Chief Arandando did not assume his prearranged responsibility of incident command, which would have entailed informing other officers that he was in command, and also leave the building to exercise command, beginning with establishing an incident command post. Instead, he remained in the hallway where he lacked reliable communication with other elements of law enforcement, and he was unable to effectively implement staging or command or control of the situation. Over the course of the next hour, hundreds of law enforcement officials arrived on the scene, 376 of them we now know. The scene was chaotic without any person obviously in charge or directing the law enforcement responses. To the extent any officers considered Chief Arandando to be the overall incident commander, they also would have recognized that he was inconsistent with him remaining inside the building. They were an overall lackadaisical approach by law enforcement at this scene. For many, this was because they were given and relied upon inaccurate information. For others, they had enough information to know better. Despite obvious deficiencies in command and control of the scene, which should have been recognized by other law enforcement responders, none, Approach Chief Orondondo or any other officer around him subordinate to him to affirmatively offer assistance with incident command. Chief Orondondo and the officers around him at the south end of the building were focused on gaining access to the classroom and protective equipment for the officers. Meanwhile, dozens of law enforcement officers were assembling in the hallway to the north of the building, stacking up for an assault on the classrooms and most waiting for further instructions pending the arrival of protective gear and equipment. While 9 11 received communication from victims inside rooms 111 and 112, Chief Arandondo did not learn about it because of his failure to establish a reliable method of receiving critical information from outside the building. Eventually, Chief Arandondo came to the understanding there probably were casualties in room 11 and 112. Even if he had received information surviving injured victims in the classroom, it is unclear that he would have done anything differently to act quote, more urgently. U.S. Marshals provided a rifle-related shield, rifle-rated shield and it arrived at 12.20, approximately 30 minutes before the classroom was finally breached. While officers acted on the assumption that, room, that the doors to rooms 111 and 112 were locked, as they were designed to be, nobody ever tested that assumption. Room 111's door probably was not effectively locked shut, both for maintenance reasons and because nobody ever locked it. Chief Arandando did not actually exercise tactical incident command over the BORTAC team, nor did the BORTAC team seek instruction from Chief Arandando. By the time the BORTAC team breached the classroom, the tactical command inside the building had de facto been assumed by BORTAC. Acting on effectively the same information available to Chief Horn including an assumption of injured victims, the BORTAC commander on the scene waited until arranging a rifle rated shield and obtaining a working master key before attempting to breach the classrooms. The committee has not received medical evidence that would inform them of the judgment about whether the breaching of the classroom sooner then the approximate 73 minutes that passed between the first responders initial arrival on in the west of the building and eventual breach of the classroom could have saved the lives or mitigated injuries. As described above, it is likely that most of the deceased victims perished immediately during the attacker's burst of gunfire. However, given the information known about the victims who survived through the time of the breach and who later died on the way to the hospital, it is plausible that some of the victims could have survived if they had not had to wait 73 minutes for the rescue you're listening to her we're reading the rob elementary school report verbatim we need a break we'll be right back to wrap up the show right after this Coming back to HerTel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us on this very different and difficult edition of HerTel. We have read most and a lot of the important portions of the Robb Elementary School report from the Texas Legislative Committee. We have linked to it. Ordinary-Times has it in its entirety. It's in a PDF format. Please read the entire report for yourself. This is our core principle here. We turn down the noise. We get to the information. We've been highly critical of the response here, so it's only fair that we read this verbatim with very little additional commentary other than context of what we were reading. Decide for yourself what was happening here with the information we now have. So wherever you and yours are, we hope you will read this full report, and we hope you will not let go of the issues here, because issues in police departments are usually universal. Issues in school systems are usually universal, because they're people problems, not systemic failures although that is what happened here do not let systemic failure mean nobody actually gets held accountable because everybody was wrong because that's how we wind up with more and more of these thank you sir Back to Hurt Tell. Okay, he's back. Bert Lyco, our great friend, our attorney friend. We're going to go out into the deep water and get really into something <laughs> that everybody says it. Everybody uses the terminology. I'm pretty sure none of us are on the same song sheet trying to figure this out. We're going to be talking rights with him. Bert, how are you today, my friend?
2: I am doing very well, Andrew. It's, uh, it's a gorgeous day out here in the Northwest, and I hope that it's at least that good for you.
3: That's quite the office view you got going there, my friend. That's uh, fantastic.
2: Little, little place called uh, Silver Falls. Yeah, come on, come on out. We'll take a walk there.
3: Famous waterfall. Uh, he says it as if it's easy to walk up there. It uh, is not. It's a little bit of a hike. Mm-hmm. Um, no pun intended there. All right, buddy. Here's what we're going to do today. I we've been batting this around for a couple of weeks. I want to get into it. Here's why I want to talk about rights. Because look at all the news headlines we've had lately: um, gun control, gun rights, Second Amendment. First Amendment, online, uh, Twitter, Elon Musk, abortion, uh, personal rights. That goes back to privacy rights. goes to other. All this stuff boils down to arguments over rights. But I'm pretty sure that everybody in America, if you take 50 Americans and ask them to tell them what your rights and what does rights mean, you're probably going to get 45, 50 answers. Does it seem to you as an attorney, as somebody who's actually studied this, do we have a good consciousness in our country of what our rights actually are, other than just the buzzwords of saying "this is my right" or "that's my right"?
2: You know, the buzzwords that we hear out in um, out in the culture. If you particularly if you get out on social media and listen to people talk about what their rights are, um, they often really boil down to "I get what I want," and that's that's not a principled way of approaching the idea of what rights are. Uh, you, you need some idea of what law is before you understand what rights are. Uh, this is getting into some political science stuff. Fortunately, I have a political science degree before, uh, before heading on to law school. So, you know, let, let's take a minute and think about what the law is, and that'll inform our idea of what rights are, because rights are a part of the law. Um, there's a lot of different judicial philosophies out there, but there's really uh, three and a half big ones. Uh, the first one, and, and this is what judicial philosophy really is, not talking about uh, liberal conservative stuff, but, uh, but how do judges approach what the law is? A lot of them and the framers of the Constitution were big subscribers to the idea of natural law. This is the idea that there's some sort of a grand, pure law that exists uh, somewhere in the universe, a, a platonic form of the ideal set of laws. The ideal law is a coherent whole. Um, perhaps uh, perhaps you believe this comes from God. Perhaps you believe that this is a function of uh, what it is to be a human being and what it means to be a human being living in a society. Perhaps it just comes from Uh, notions of morality. Uh, If you want an example of how we can take a very abstract airy concept like natural law and make it real, go to your state's vehicle code and look up something called the basic speed law. That's a good example of natural lawyering made real you should not drive your car faster than is safe for prevailing circumstances, roughly how the basic speed law translates. That doesn't give you a number for how fast to drive, but it does give you a concept. And if you get a ticket from a police officer for violating the basic speed law, everyone in that court, when you show up to have that ticket adjudicated, is gonna know what they're talking about. That's one way of approaching what the law is. What is a right if you approach the law this way? It is something that is inherently yours. The grand natural law bestows upon you certain privileges, certain uh, abilities to do things. And the positive law, the thing that humans actually do, lawyers do it, cops do it, uh, judges do it, people involved in, in the legal professions, and uh, institutions implement law. Uh, they are bound by those rights, and they must respect your rights. Maybe even other private individuals need to respect your rights in a natural law system. Compare that with its great competitor, the, uh, the school of law that's called positivism. Uh, positivistic law says that law is the will of the sovereign enforced with uh, legitimated power. So this divorces the idea of what law is from morality, from some sort of a perfection. It says that law is a human phenomenon. It is something that people do together through their institutions, through their government. And therefore, your rights in a positivistic system are going to be different from place to place based on who the sovereign is. Um, We say sovereign, uh, you know, the idea was first thrown around uh, back in the days of uh, absolute kingly power in European nations. So the sovereign was easy to identify. He's the guy with the crown on his head. In a place like the United States, it's a little harder because we have divided our sovereign up into a lot of different governmental institutions. But you can use a formalistic legal analysis to figure out whether a rule that has been handed down by one of those institutions constitutes an enforceable law. If natural law is the basic speed law, positive law is the posted speed limit. Uh, The sign that says 35 miles an hour is the positive law that tells you how to drive.
3: So here's the push-pull of that, not to interrupt you for just a second though. The reason we have to have that is because what well, you're talking about, the law, where it comes from. The second part of that coin is who enforces it and the push pull, especially when it comes to America. And as we'll get into with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and Bill of Rights and all that is you have a government and you have people. The government has rights and the people have rights. And I'm, I'm really simplifying this, but that ratio, you know, more power to the government, less rights for the people, more rights for the people, less power for the government balancing that ratio that's really where you start getting well which theory are you going to to try to balance that ratio that's where all this heads and where it all kind of gets real icky in a hurry isn't it Uh,
2: among other things uh there this is an area where i will caution you to be careful with the construction of your sentence um you will hear the idea of a uh, a state's right or the government has the right to do things right um it's um I take great exception to that. If I have a contribution to make to, uh, to all this taxonomy, it's that governmental institutions, uh, the government uh, does not have rights, period. Uh, they cannot have rights under any of these systems. The government has power. The government has the ability to go out and send uh, men and women with guns to make you do things. That's what power ultimately is. Uh, we legitimate it. We say this is an okay thing to do under certain circumstances. But uh, but ultimately, uh, as, uh, as as Mao said, power comes from the barrel of a gun. Uh, not that I wish to hold up Mao as a uh, admirable figure.
3: Well, I mean, we've had the divine rights of kings that you already touched on, and now Mao, so we're off to a great start discussing rights. Uh, Mark mm-hmm. Pico joining us. Talk about that power, though um government power it's the line in the declaration of the of independence that everybody goes to um it's probably where everybody when they think rights if they have any kind of education in american history at all it's probably the first thing they think of you know we are all men are created equal and by their creator unalienable rights life liberty pursuit of happiness and then the very next line that everybody skips when they do life liberty and pursuit of happiness (laughs) to secure these rights governments are instituted among man derived their just powers from the consent of the governed just that sentence there and everything you just said that's years worth of legal theory to try to straighten out but we're doing this in real time trying to discuss what our rights are what the government can and can't do like you just said the government's got a lot of authority right up to and including taking your life at the barrel of a gun when it comes right down to it as we've seen too often with law enforcement where do we start deriving how to explain to people what their rights are with that much umbrella over top of it?
2: That line from the Declaration of Independence requires a ton of unpacking. Uh, let's, let's just start with one of those phrases, the one that people like to, uh, like to invoke, inalienable rights. Um, what does the word inalienable mean? And it does not mean that these are absolute rights. It means they are non-transferable. It means that they are inherent in yourself and can't be given to someone else. But it doesn't mean that these are absolute rights. And that's why the institution of government becomes important. If I have an absolute right, then that means that I have that right over you. I have the right to do a certain thing, whether you like it or not, whether you object to it or not, and your rights don't matter. Well, that's not how you build a society. That's not how you build people living together peacefully. That's not how you build people um, being equal to one another in in any sort of a fundamental way. Maybe you don't think people should be equal. Maybe you think the king should be better than everyone else. Uh, That's one way to have a society, I suppose, but it isn't a particularly lawful one. It isn't one that I think most people would want to live in.
3: They are good attorney friend, Bert Lyko. More on Hertel right after this. go ahead no so, but it's funny you mentioned that because the two great documents of our society our country declaration of independence the constitution we don't talk about it enough in history but there was an intermediate step that got us to the constitution the articles mm-hmm. of confederation and what happened and what people sometimes miss and i forget too i had to go back and look was we had a we had a lot of democracy we had too much democracy the democracy became tyrannical, just not to be too overly blunt with it. And they had to go back to the drawing board and go, OK, this isn't working. We need something else. And then you have, you know, Matt, you have the Virginia plan, which basically morphed into the Constitution as we know it now. So just inherent rights and the institution by man of government, even our founders, they didn't get it right the first time. And I think that's something important to note. Like we, we sometimes hold up the founders as like these perfect... No, 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 they actually botched it the first time around. We had to do this all over again, and there were some learned experiences in Shays' Rebellion, and there's a lot of history you need to go into there. They didn't get it right the first time either, even the system we have with our rights now, and the rights got curtailed and changed, and the way the government was formed was very different than what they probably thought when they did the Declaration of Independence,
2: wasn't it? Well, let's, let's think about some taxonomy here, too. Uh, We often use the phrases, the founders and the framers, as though they were interchangeable. And there's a lot of overlap. A lot of the same people were both founders and framers. The founders, you should think of as the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, the people who created the United States of America as a political entity. And the Declaration is a political act. It is not a legal one. The Declaration of Independence contains no law. It is an important document because it creates the country. It is uh, the organic source of the United States of America. But the law was created by framers. These are the people who signed the original constitution, the unamended constitution. Uh, Framers crafted this as a law. And what it is, is not some holy writ created by people acting under divine inspiration or trying to set down rules for all time. Uh, They were very clear about what they created. It says so right in the document. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It is a law. The Constitution is a legal document. It is a legal document that is the result, as you correctly point out, of a political decision to say what we are doing right now under the Articles of Confederation isn't working. We need to do something different. And then the result of a lot of political compromise. Uh, you should think of the, the framers creating the Constitution as no different than the politicians of today trying to create a major piece of legislation. There was horse trading going on. There was log rolling going on. Uh, all of the kinds of deal making, all of the kinds of uh, political interactions that we either like or dislike, depending on whether we like or dislike the politicians, go, went into the creation of the Constitution. It is uh, it is the sausage that got made in Philadelphia in 1787. And the sausage making process was not pretty.
3: Yeah. And for people who might recoil at that a little bit and say, oh, well, that's a you know, well, you're not being respectful. That's a part. No, because they actually if you read the history on it, and I did before we had this conversation, they didn't actually gather to write the Constitution and form a new government. They were actually just going to do some tweaking on it. And Madison and the Virginians hijacked the whole thing and went. Okay, let's try to do something big and radical here. And they did. But there was a lot of slavery is the big one that almost, you know, hijacked the whole thing, almost brought it to a screeching halt. There was states rights issues. Uh, The biggest one was actually taxes and property uh, ownership. That was the big thing of the day when we're talking rights. Let's start with that one, because it's the very first thing they did with the Bill of Rights. It was the thing that is the most in the notes and the letters and the contemporary materials of the day. They were absolutely obsessed over taxes and property rights, justly so because of what happened during the revolution. That's kind of the start of the discussion of rights as they formed in the Constitution was property rights and taxation powers, right?
2: And they adopted a, a system of government. They adopted a phrase that says life, liberty, and property can't be taken without due process of law. Well, what does that mean? what what they they agreed on those words but what do those words mean in practice they did need a government that was going to be able to levy taxes and send people out to go collect those taxes and enforce those taxes if need be uh, because there was no military that was left to defend the country if uh, if britain decided they wanted to take the united states back at some point and or if try. <laughs> uh, they they did try and uh, you know, well, they got Washington at least for a little while, but uh, that wound up being an, another draw. Yay us! Uh,
3: Bert Lyko joining us. We're getting into some deep stuff on rights, where they come from, especially here in America. We're going to take a quick break. Come back. We're going to start working through these actual rights. You've heard about them: uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press. What do they actually mean? Where does it come from? The black and white legal and the practical, as it stands today. Our good attorney friend Bert Lyko. More on her tell. Bird Lico is back with us on her Tell. We're out in some deep water, but this is Grown Folk Talk. that We got to talk about our rights, where they come from. What do they actually mean? Not the buzzwords online when people just don't get what they want. It's the me first and the gimme gimme crowd. What does it actually mean to have rights? Uh, we did a little bit of the history. I really encourage people to read up on how we got our Constitution because the way it was written that didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence. And the sequence is really, really, really important to understanding why our constitution got written the way it was good, bad, and indifferent. It's not perfect. Um, please do read your history up on this, but it brings us to the bill of rights. Um, initially this wasn't going to be a part of the constitution. This is one of those making sausage things you mentioned. This was the compromise, uh, to get the constitution done. They had to do this bill of rights. Um, so let's just talk about that and get that out of the way before we talk about them individually of when we're talking rights in America, especially politically and legally, usually we're talking about the Bill of Rights. That's kind of the foundation. How important was it that this got into the Constitution right from the go?
2: Well, we wouldn't have a Constitution without it. Uh, there is a very large faction of people who were we, we now identify under the name anti-federalists. Uh, i think the most prominent among them was a uh, a politician from virginia named george mason and uh, mason and the rest of his allies said there need to be limits on the federal government's power over individual people because we have rights remember all of the framers were steeped in Enlightenment era notions of natural law and human beings possessing natural inherent rights. You'll see that language pop up again and again from the Declaration through the Federalist Papers, through the Anti-Federalist Papers, which are also important to read. So uh, Mason and his allies argued that the government could run roughshod over these inherent rights. The response from the Federalists, from Madison and his allies, was, I think, pretty weak catch-up. For instance, the Establishment Clause. Uh, The the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, we need to understand what they meant by an establishment, but uh, for, for shorthand purposes, let's call it an official religion of the country. Madison argued, well, there's no specific grant of power to Congress to create an established religion. Therefore, Congress can't do it. And Mason said, no, that's not good enough for us. We don't trust ourselves, this group of politicians um, um, among which he was uh, a a participant to not do that. Uh, Because a lot of people when given power will create laws that say we win, we get our way. So if there are more congregationalists than any other kind of religion in a given area, like say in Massachusetts, They will establish an official religion. Congregationalism was the established official religion of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for about 60 years after the Constitution was adopted. So he he was probably right about that. He demanded, um, he and the other anti-federalists, it wasn't just him, Uh, demanded that in order to get their agreement to ratify the Constitution, that a Bill of Rights be immediately passed that limited the power of the government to do certain things that were important. Twelve were originally uh, written. A total of 11 have been adopted. Uh, The first 10 are what we call the Bill of Rights.
3: I want to pause for just a second, because on this this program, we covered a a piece in Diplomatic Courier a couple of weeks ago. Uh, where they did this index of freedom across and this isn't one of the bs ones this is one of those where they actually put some thought into it it's not one of those oh freest countries in the world and you know iran's number three or whatever this isn't one of those but they were talking about the resilience of societies and cultures and nations and they made the point because i think a lot of people kind of wonder or they never thought about why religion was number one on the first amendment and then you get freedom of press speech those followed after religion why is that And this is modern day. This is right now. And they talked about one of the biggest indicators of a resilient society is the freedom of the press and freedom of religion and that they have to go together and work together. Now, that sounds weird to us because we always think, well, it's freedom of speech and then freedom of religion and free. We have a different order. And they said, no, 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 because the press is the accountability and the religion is how much leeway the government's going to give you to think. And that's the indication of the resiliency of a society and a government is how they handle those two things together. And I find it really interesting that in the modern times, even that's still true, that they put religion number one, because religion, you know, we, we are the great experiment in men self-governing. Religion is how men try to kind of figure out their place in the world on top of it. It's really amazing how those things all go together. And they put it first and it's the third word, what the third or fourth word in the whole thing. That's all very, very purposeful.
2: And let me underline that a little bit by pointing out a lot of the things that you do with um, with your religion, uh, with your religious institution that you, that you affiliate with on a voluntary basis. Uh, those things are protected by the First Amendment, uh, but they are probably protected by expression rights rather than religious rights. If you are, for instance, a, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who is... Uh, required under your doctrines to go out and spread the good word and proselytize proselytizing is protected under freedom of speech not as an exercise of religion if um, a, a, a whole lot of what you do under your the, the the cloak of a religious activity is actually freedom of expression
3: and both of those groups, the Mormons, especially, they had their periods of persecution in this country because of their unique faithness. This goes back to where we started with rights again. You know, rights is always going to be a push-pull thing. Where does your religion, <laughs> It's not, not even proselytizing, but just like, you know. The Mormon faith will have a different thing than my Baptist faith. Our Catholic friends are very different from our Jewish friends. And a uh, Muslims, different sex inside of Islam may not get along with the other sexes we see all too well in the world um, mm-hmm. because of the rules. That goes right back to where we started with rights. There's always that push-pull of where does my rights stop and where do they go to you and where do they have to stop on you before they infringe on in you? And that's the eternal debate, isn't it?
2: let me propose my construction my my own contribution to the discussion of what legal philosophy is your way of understanding rights is that if you are acting within your rights it is a sphere of activity where you hold the ultimate decision-making power you are the one who decides at the end of the day uh, what is going to happen will i uh, vote for a Republican, a Democrat, or will I vote at all? I am the one who decides that ultimately you don't have the power over me to make me vote a certain way. Uh, the government does not have power over me to make me vote a certain way. Therefore, when I choose whether to vote and how to vote, that is me acting autonomously. I hold the autonomy. If it's a question of the government exercising power, the government is the one who exercises ultimate autonomy. I do not have a choice about whether or not I will pay my taxes. If I choose not to pay my taxes, somebody from the government is eventually going to come along and say, "Uh, too bad, Bert, you are going to pay your taxes, and we're going to be taking that money directly out of your bank account because you do not have the ultimate authority here who has autonomy if it's the individual we are talking about a right and if it is the government we are talking about the government's power your right ends where the government's power begins and vice versa the law tells us where that boundary is and crafting the law Is a complex task because we live in a complex society with a lot of individuals, and we want to maximize the amount of rights people have. So how do we create laws that allow people to use the maximum amount of rights available while still having an effective government?
3: How important is because we're talking a lot of individual rights here. When we're not having effective government, how much does that really affect our rights? And I know we see it easily. You know, you're an attorney, so you're, you know, more on the criminal justice, civil litigation side of it. It shows up there really, really fast when government isn't effective. But even in our day-to-day lives, we saw this some with um, the unevenness of COVID lockdowns and how some of that was done and how it wasn't done and how government exercised power it normally doesn't exercise. We saw how messy that was. Inefficient government really runs into rights in a great big hurry, doesn't it?
2: Here in Oregon, we are having a very significant problem uh, with our criminal justice system, particularly with publicly appointed counsel for indigent people. Uh, The... um, The state of Oregon has picked a way of providing counsel for uh, indigent criminal defendants to stand trial, and uh, mostly it farms out uh, criminal defense work to attorneys in uh, public interest law firms that then assign out what are public defenders in, in, in practice. I have uh, some colleagues here that I office with who make the majority of their money by doing that kind of work, getting a public appointment to do defense for, uh, for indigents who have been, been provided state counsel. Well, there hasn't been enough money put into that system, and frankly, the system is not being run particularly efficiently or, uh, 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 dare I say it, competently. I don't want to disrespect people who I really think are trying their best, but they are not doing good enough. I have uh, one colleague who offices two doors down from me who hasn't been paid a dime in four months, I have a paralegal that I work with who hasn't been paid a dime in six months. She's living off of her credit cards right now, and that is a totally unacceptable state of affairs. There are thousands and thousands of legal professionals who are providing Sixth Amendment defenses to people, and, um, and they're not being paid to do it because the state has incompetently put that system together and is continuing to run it incompetently. Uh, so what's the result of this? Uh, The result is judges are finally getting frustrated uh, and the lawyers are finally getting frustrated. Lawyers are saying, I'm not going to take on any new court appointments. Uh, Here in in Multnomah County, uh, the city of Portland is most of the county and we are seeing a lot of criminal defendants get arrested, get arraigned, and then they're supposed to be appointed counsel. They aren't for months and months. And judges have become so frustrated they are starting to dismiss the criminal charges because the state is unable to proceed and meet its obligations to these criminal defendants. This is not fair to the victims of those crimes who deserve to see the people who have uh, who have done things to them go through the justice system and get such measure of justice as is uh, is due to them
3: as a as a way to round this off in the few minutes we got left uh, burr Lyko joining us our great lawyer friend frequent contributor here he also writes at ordinary times once in a while since he uh formerly helmed that and he's been a great <laughs> mentor and friend of me in that regard well let, let's round it back this way talking about just that i'm going to say really inarticulately because i don't know the and you put it in the terminology and make it all lawyery and pretty but I'm just going to say it the way I feel it because I don't know any other way to do it. How do we, what you just discussed is one part of a much bigger problem. How do we discuss in the United States of America in the year 2022 with social media and with everybody in the information age and all the other mess with it? How do we have the conversation of people understanding that yes, it's important to protect other people's rights, even people you don't like, maybe especially people you don't like. That you have to protect their rights, because if somebody doesn't have rights, nobody has rights in the way our system is set up. And you have to care about that, because I find a shocking lack of care about other people's rights in the media and the advocacy we do and the writing we do. I find a shocking lack of people understanding the fact that, like, yes, it matters if some even the worst of the worst criminals, if their rights are stripped away just under the guise of, well, they're a bad person, eventually that trickles down to everybody else. How do we have that conversation with people on a practical level? Because all this big words we say, government accountability, uh, reform, political, whatever you want to call, do not it all kind of just start there with understanding of everybody has rights and we need to all collectively understand those rights and advocate for them equally and better, at least better than we have been?
2: We need to have that conversation with empathy, and we need to have that conversation like grownups. Uh, I am not impressed with, uh, with the social discourses measure on either of those indexes. We need to understand that the law is supposed to be there for everyone. And if the law isn't there for everyone, it isn't there for anyone. Uh, Robert Bolt wrote in A Man for All Seasons quite a long time ago in a dialogue between uh, uh, Sir Thomas More and William Roper about... Uh, uh, Roper's desire to eliminate evil from England and more um, and, and challenges him. What would you do, Roper? Would you cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Roper says, yes, I would cut down every law in England to do that. Oh, well, when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, would you hide, Roper, all the laws being flat? This country's planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down, and you're just the man to do it, Roper was the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow where the forest used to be? I'd give the devil the benefit of the law, if only for my own safety's sake. Moore is absolutely right, and this may be the only time and in the only context that you will hear me praise uh, Sir Thomas Moore, who I am actually not a great fan of. Uh, But uh, but he's absolutely right about that. If the law is not there for these criminal defendants in Oregon, and you know, we're not mostly talking about murderers and rapists here. We're talking about, uh, you know, meth dealers and car stealers. Uh, these are not good things to do, but these are also relatively ordinary sorts of crimes. If the law isn't there for these people, then the law isn't going to be there for you when you need it. And if you don't have the ability to recognize that, uh, then you have fallen victim to the spell that that third, uh, third legal school of thought that I wanted to talk about here, the, the, the idea of legal realism. You've fallen victim to that. Uh, and you've fallen victim to a privilege that you have that right now you're in the in-group. And the in-group tends to get the law enforced on it in ways that are less harsh and easier to withstand than the outgroup does. And don't think about it in terms of um, uh, you know, critical race theory is going to make people's alarm bells go off because that's a current political buzzword. But the lesson of it is if you are in the in-group, it's good for you. And if you're in the out-group, it's bad for you. You can be in the out-group. And if you're thinking about the law, you should think about it from a position of neutrality. Um, you don't know if you're in the in-group or the out-group. You don't know if the law is going to come down hard or soft on you. So why don't we write the law in a way that's fair to everyone? Yeah,
3: and we got some really, really ugly chapters of U.S. history on what happens to the out-groups. And we should all take a lesson from that and be like, the first thing we need to make sure we do is we don't have any out-groups under the law because that's when the real trouble really hard. And we have people right now, named people, famous people in our commentariat who are advocating for those very things, although they call it under terminology and we better fight it now before it gets really ugly. Burlico, I wish we had all day on this topic. We will talk about it again. I promise you, we'll bring you back real quick. Let folks know where they can follow you uh, and keep track with you until we get you back on Hertel. And I, I bring you on for an easier topic. We'll talk, you know, beer <laughs> and food trucks or
2: something. That that's fun also, but this is this is the real conversation of our day. Um, I will comment on it. I'll comment on how I think things are going in these spheres. Uh, you can follow me on my Twitter feed, where you'll find uh, random thoughts, uh, sometimes intemperate and vulgar at B-U-R-T-L-I-K-K-O. And every once in a while, I will uh, post an essay back up at ordinary-times.com. And uh, that's it's always uh, feels like com- coming home when I do something like that.
3: Yeah, he has clear-the-deck privileges, him and a couple other folks, his uh, running partner up in Portland there, Todd Kelly as well. Uh, both good friends of the program. We love talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today, sir. We'll, we'll. I got a feeling we'll be revisiting this topic a lot, especially this fall when the Supreme Court rejoins again. And then, of course, when we have a new Congress come next year. Thank you for the time, Bert. Appreciate you, sir.
2: Absolutely, Andrew.
3: Okay, let's have a little bit of fun. Let's talk some culture. Let's talk some movies. He goes to the movies, so I don't have to because I can just read what he wrote about it and then I don't get out of it. It's cheaper. Let the kids go. They can explain it to me. Our good, good friend. He is great. He is a cinephile. He has an excellent substack and other writings. Luis Mendez, back on the show, back on Hurtel. Welcome, my friend. Good to have you back.
4: Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, it's a little hot down here in Florida. It's 80 degrees. It's considered cool right now. Uh, But if you can't hit the pool or the beach, it's a good time to go to uh, the movies and uh, enjoy the AC. Yeah,
3: I've actually been joking. We've been getting so much rain. It's been like thunderstorm every afternoon. I'm like, we're having Florida weather. It's like thunderstorm every single day, no matter what. Let's start big picture before we talk about individual movies, though, because this is kind of the first full year of non-COVID stuff. People are coming back to the theaters now, we had Top Gun, which has just been a massive, massive hit by any metric you want to use. One of the biggest movies of all time. People are saying the movies are back. I don't know that Top Gun's a good measure for that because of how unique it was, because of the buildup, because of, we all know the 38-year wait, all that fun stuff. Take Top Gun out. What kind of a year is the theater experience really having, though?
4: I mean, I, I would argue that it's definitely have, has bounced back, uh, especially compared to last year. Last year, there were a lot of ups and downs, uh, especially for adult dramas. Uh, but I, I think I saw a stat that it's actually right now running ahead of 2019 box office, which is crazy to me because 2019 was a year where it was just a bunch of billion dollar movies dominating the that summer, I remember that was the year where it seemed like there was an event film coming out every week and they started cannibalizing each other at the box office. But um, I, 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 don't, I, wanted, I want to be careful to say the movies are back myself, because there's still a lot of things that are in play now regarding streaming, regarding uh, IPs, uh, compared to uh, smaller films that are still there. That being said, this past weekend, there was a movie that came out called uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. Uh, Now, if that movie came out last year, I think it wouldn't have done too well. It's, It's doing a little bit better than expected, and it seems to be showing that maybe we're starting to get some older audiences back to the movie theaters compared to last year. So I think that maybe in terms of getting back to more consistent box office and more consistent au- audiences all around were there, but it doesn't mean that a lot of the issues that a lot of these art tour directors have been complaining about, uh, you know, have gone away, they're still there.
3: Let's use Where the Crawl Sings, real quick. Obviously, that was a monster book, uh, well known book that's been adapted. It's a they call it a mystery thriller but that's kind of a little bit of a misnomer for the kind of movie is it's a very specific movie i don't want to give away because it's a very intricate plot but you were tweeting about it and this is a good example of something we're talking about it here you were tweeting about how the audience scores and the tomato meter and you can explain to folks what the tomato meter is but that's become just about as important as any critic in america really in a lot of ways the dispersion between those two things and this movie really kind of brought it out just break that down for folks and use this example of Once again, we kind of see where the audience scores and the critic scores and the online scores, these things aren't always matching up on movies nowadays, are they?
4: Well, no, because, well, mainly because uh, it's a subjective art form. I know there's some critics out there that seem to forget about that and they treat it like it's got to be this uh, perfect thing and you're not allowed to disagree with each other about certain movies, but... So the tomato meter has really taken over what used to be the big thing, which was Roger Ebert's thumbs up, thumbs down. That used to be, I remember growing up that was all over all the movie posters They did get thumbs up from Ebert and they would talk about it. Uh, Well, what happened is, is that now the tomato meter is taken over from Rotten Tomatoes. And basically what it is is that they, they aggregate critical ratings and they say, how many uh, critics said that they generally liked the movie? How many said they generally disliked the movie? And what's happened is that since the site got bought up by uh, Fandango, they've created an option for audiences to get involved. Um, and I think it's a great um, metric to see what audiences are feeling like compared to critics. Uh, and I think it actually comes in handy during the awards season when you're trying to figure out the difference between critical um, awards and industry awards and where the crowd that thinks is a great example of something that sometimes happens where uh, it's like in the 30s with critics on Rotten Tomatoes but it's in the high 90s with audiences and when you see that kind of disconnect, it really drives home that just because critics and I, and I say this as an aspiring movie critic myself. Just because critics like or don't like a movie doesn't necessarily mean that audiences won't react differently to that movie. A a good example of this from last year, uh, out of a a a lot of good examples from last year, is The Green Knight. Uh, Critics loved that movie. Audiences did not respond well to that movie. And when industry awards came and a lot of people, a lot of fellow critics were complaining, wondering, well, where's Green Knight? Where's Green Knight? Why no love for Green Knight? There's no love for Green Knight because industry voters tend to be more like audiences and they don't didn't like the movie as much as the critics did. We saw that with Power of the Dog. One of the big reasons Power of the Dog melted down at the end because and I say this is someone who liked the movie. uh, Its audience scores are awful. Uh, and so we're seeing that right now where the tomato meter, I think, has been a really good tool. Uh, it seems to annoy some cinephiles out there uh, because it kind of shows the gap between audiences and hardcore film fans. But I think it's a good metric. I, I love it. Um, and it also helps you to not get so stuck in your bubble if you're like part of film Twitter like I am and kind of see what general audiences are thinking.
3: This goes along the line. Luis Mendez joining us. Uh, your last piece for Ordinary-Times.com. Every, uh, every couple months, you touch in on your awards things. And the latest one, you touched on this, and I think it goes together with what you're saying. It's, it, it's a thing now. Almost every year at the Oscars, when you start putting together your list, there's going to be that non-traditional, populist, popular uh, movie that's going to get some kind of a nomination just by general proclamation. It's it's a real thing now for the Oscars. They're going to put that one fan favorite film in there somewhere to try to get a little bit of attention, right? That that that's a trend.
4: Yeah, and and it also helps when uh, these movies stay. It's always tends to be a movie that somehow explodes to a way where it's almost like the Academy can't ignore it. So what happens is that a bunch of voters who maybe would have dismissed it as a genre film go and watch it and they end up really liking it themselves. They put it in their top 10 list, they submit their ballots and it ends up getting nominated. Arguably, Dune was that movie last year. Uh, even though I would say it's a little bit more artsy in comparison to others, but then you have things like Mad Max Fury Road a couple of years ago, Black Panther, the big one back in 2018. Um, it's it, it, And the question is for me every year, what is going to be that one genre film? And now that we have the slate where you have to have 10 nominees, I think there's a very real possibility where we could have maybe this year, maybe next, where even, even two of those kind of movies sneak in.
3: Talk about the Academy for a second, since we're on the subject. Let's just take Top Gun because most people have seen it or at least know what it is. It's such a monster movie. Um, It's going to be one of the all-time movies. The average audience that goes and watches Top Gun, you can just tell the way it was filmed, the way it's almost all live action. There's almost no CGI in it, very little CGI. You can't even notice it unless you're looking for it. The way that movie was made, there's nobody in their right mind could look at that and go, this isn't an achievement in filmmaking, even the average person. However, that's not always how the Academy looks at it. I'm sure it's going to rack up technical awards. Talk about how the Academy views movie-making the art form as opposed to movie-making the technical form, because I think something like Top Gun is really where it starts intersecting and it gets confusing, because nobody didn't watch that movie and go, my God, this is just visually gorgeous to look at. It's an experience, right? So, where do those start going, art and the technical part of it? Because the Academy, most of those awards are supposed to be technical awards. We focus on the artsy part of it. They don't always all go together in a good, neat ball, do they?
4: I mean, no. Uh, I mean, I could write a whole book about why I think such as the Academy is like not in touch. You with should, by the way, I would buy it <laughs> about the regular move, how the, the disconnected they are from the regular movie goer. And which, by the way, a lot of people think it's a modern thing. You could go back all the way to the beginning. Of the Academy Awards and see things that did not age well for them, uh, winners that didn't age well, uh, movies that people go "how wonderful" did not not get nominated for Best Picture that year. Uh, I think what happens is that it's very easy. And, and us movie fans, movie critics, cinephiles who do our best uh, movies of the year list at the end, we do this too. Uh, I wrote a piece about Ebert and uh, Robert, uh, I mean me, uh, Ebert and Siskel over at Ordinary Slash Times. And I even mentioned this about when you look at some of these old best of the year lists, you get so caught up in the moment of that year that sometimes you don't think about the fact that we don't know what movies are going to age a certain way. We don't know what movies are going to go on to become certain types of classics. And uh, I'll probably, I actually think about writing a piece on this over at ordinary times uh, where I think there's different kinds of classics. There's those movies that uh, we grow up with uh, are part of the culture. And there are those movies that you got to really be a hardcore cinephile to know that they're out there and, and, you know, show something books like the 1000 movies to watch before you die and stuff like that. Uh, so I think since the Academy gets caught up in that, and what is this art form uh, in the art form sort of uh, part of the movie industry? What what's that movie that we're going to the film students are going to be learning about down the line? And sometimes they don't stop and think about, well, what are the movies that we're going to be showing our kids and their kids are going to be and those kids are going to be passing it down to their kids and we're going to be seeing on network tv that's a whole other thing and i some people say that the academy should become more insular believe it or not there are people who have made that argument i personally think that it doesn't that all hope is not lost even though i do know that obviously there's some of that audience you're never going to get back um i think top gun is the perfect intersection to be that movie where they they like the story, they like the script, they like the uh, they like the art form, and I think one of the big reasons, among many, that it does have a chance to actually get nominated for best picture, um, is because it almost serves as almost like a difference to the Marvel situation that's going on right now, because it's not a CGI spectacle, but it is a summer blockbuster. It is a genre film, and it shows kind of this idea that you don't have to be a big superhero movie. You don't have to be this big CGI scap- uh, spectacle to be this successful. And it's, I think there's going to be a lot of industry voters, some who maybe have their grudges with Marvel, whatever, or are not happy with the direction of the blockbuster. I think there are going to be some who are really going to respond to that as this movie is sort of our delight at the end of the tunnel of that we can make blockbusters that don't have to have CGI all over it. We, they don't have to have superheroes. And I think that's why it has a real chance to become that populist film that makes it into the best picture slate.
3: Yeah, there's always a little bit of politics no matter which way you go. And I'll repeat myself. He's not going to get an Oscar, but one of the other lesser awards. I'd love to see Miles Taylor get something or at least some nominations somewhere in there because I, yeah. I just thought he was amazing in that. That movie don't work without him. I know it's Tom Cruise on the headline, but he made that puppy go.
4: He might have a shot at sad, because SAG because yeah, like yeah, SAG sometimes gives a, a better... SAG and PGA seem to get better uh, props to the genre films.
3: Yeah, but it's, it's a great movie, but... Um, one more thought on this kind of stream of thought on, the, on the Academy though, what does the Academy, cause you know, we know what the ratings are. We know the thing, what does the Academy do to bring back normal viewers without it being a pandering thing? Because my concern is anything they're going to try to do is probably going to come off cringy at best and pandering at worst. And it's probably going to make it worse. What practically could they actually do besides just nominating a top gun or something? That's just obviously a great movie that everybody loves. Can they change? Is it just too institutional? What can they do here that wouldn't come off bad?
4: Yeah, well, this is a heated debate every year over at Awards Twitter. Uh, I'm firmly tend to be in the uh, I tend to be the unpopular opinion among a lot of those folks. A lot of those folks say forget it. Just just embrace the insularity and and forget about the regular movie goer. I think that all hope is not lost. Uh, I do agree that sometimes they can come off cringe. I think they completely filled with this Oscar fan favorite thing. I think that could have been something really cool where they had given props to genre films that people had seen, gotten more people interested. And instead it became this mess where a bunch of Snyder fans basically trolled the voting process, which is a horrible voting process. I don't know what on earth made them think that we should to allow people multiple votes. And, uh, and it led to, Uh, The the fan favorite being uh, Justice League and no disrespect, I'm I'm not trying to disrespect Justice League or or Zack Snyder here, but the Academy obviously was trying to see if they could give some props to, say, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, which was more of a big cultural footprint last year. Uh, I I think that they, first of all, I do think that they can make that fan favorite thing work if they just tinker with it a little so that they don't uh, have some of the the situations that happened last year. Uh, I also think that they need to be more open to award to giving genre films uh, love. Uh, top Gun Maverick would be a good start because if if we're, it, at the rate things are going, Top Gun Maverick is looking like it'll probably be the top domestic box office movie of the year. We have not had a top box office domestic movie of the year get nominated for best picture since Black Panther. Uh, it's going so I, I think that they need to uh, embrace that uh more and not seem so out of touch also when they have their shows um don't go out of your way to try to pander i agree with that the tonys recently have enjoyed some big ratings boosts and what they've done is that they've, they've done some performance. They do the performances. They don't pander. They try to celebrate what they're what they're awarding instead of making jokes about them. And I think that would go a long way. You're not going to get everybody back because of uh, the way things have changed and how people watch things. Uh, and it's going to take years to get that crowd back. You're not going to get them like back overnight. But I do think it's possible. I'm not, I haven't given up hope uh, like some others seem to, but at the rate they're going, the Oscars are just going to get end up becoming uh, probably streaming online for us niche fans.
3: Yeah, and I'm no, I'm not a big Broadway guy, but the Tonys are fun. Like if you you watch the clips and stuff, they figured out a way to make them fun. If yeah. There's nothing fun about the Oscars. It's a slog. No, they got to figure no. out some way to make it at least semi fun. Talking to our buddy Luis Mendez, our cinephile, our movie expert. Uh, we're going to get back into Marvel uh, for Love and Thunder. A lot of debate about it. He had the hottest of hot takes. He defends it next on Hertel. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, sometimes you just lose control of your own program. This is going to be one of those instances. Luis Mendez joining us. All right, buddy. Thor, Love and Thunder, go.
4: Okay, so I have to say I am stunned that this movie has become one of the more divisive MCU movies um it's it's uh, for a lot of people this is a low tier MCU film because I remember when the reactions were coming out initially to the world premiere I was seeing people who usually are not big MCU fans giving good reviews to the movie I saw people who didn't like Ragnarok uh give good reviews to the movie so I thought oh this is going to be a big hit this is going to be a big critical hit for the MCU. It's going to make great money. Well, it's going to make great money regardless. Um, but then as I watched the weekend come in and I saw that letterbox score go down, the cinema score came in at B+, plus, which is not bad, but it's not, you you want that A grade if you want to get really, really great word of mouth. And I started talking to more people. I started realizing this is going to be a, a very divisive movie Um among the Marvel fandom, among general audiences and such. All I can say is, is that for me, the movie worked incredibly. It is right now my number three of the year. Um, I thought it was not as good as Ragnarok, but pretty close to it. I loved Christian Bale's performance as the villain. Uh, I liked that the movie hit on themes of faith, uh, finding meaning in life, sacrifice, um, Coming to terms with one's mortality and all those kind of things, um, I will admit, and I think it's one of the big reasons why Thor movies can at times end up being the more divisive movies of the franchise. They have taken the direction with him where they've decided he's going to be a comedic character compared to when they first introduced him, and some people have it's it hasn't worked with them. And Tyka's humor sometimes can be a little over the top and be a little forced and I will say there are times in the movie where I could pick apart and say they were going they were clearly going for forced comedy here but for me I thought the movie was a blast and it probably helped that I was with an audience that really was having a lot of fun with the movie I know that I've heard stories of audiences where the jokes were not landing uh, but for my audience they were they actually clapped when the credits hit which was took me aback because uh, it's been a while since I've gotten that experience at a movie theater, even with some of the big hits like No Way Home and Top Gun. Uh, I thought it was a great movie. I thought it was fun. Great soundtrack. Um, It also probably helps I'm a massive Thor fan. He's one of my favorites of the MCU characters, but I, I don't know what else to say. Every year there's that one movie that is getting kind of mixed reviews uh that ends up in my favorites of the year list but and and honestly i think you shouldn't trust any critic that doesn't have at least one of those movies on their list because you should be able to go against the crowd a couple times but for me it's it's one of my favorite movies of the year one of my favorite genre films and for me it was top tier mcu see you i
3: think this i think thor's kind of a microcosm that it, I think it's a fair criticism that Marvel's had a little bit of an identity crisis post Endgame here. I think the Thor franchise is a good example of it because you mentioned it; they've turned him into a comedic character in a lot of ways. Part of that's because of how Hemsworth acts it. Because and I'm that's not a knock; I think he's great. Yeah, he's he's owned the role. But remember, they made him that way because the audience demanded it after the first two Thor films. So they kind of made their own boat with this. Marvel reacted to it, but I think that's part of you know the if you can say a multi-billion dollar franchise has problems they do have a bit of an identity crisis and the Thor series kind of shows it is like you've got four really different films here and it's just kind of showing you know Marvel sometimes for all their planning and all their stage one two three six whatever we're on now they sometimes have trouble holding the course because they do try to navigate the audience and the audience is fickle more even with a big property like that doesn't
4: they? Well, I think I, I agree 100% that they seem to be having identity crisis. I think I even mentioned, I tweeted about this, that it really feels like after Endgame, they don't really have a, a direction. Now, I know that there were stories that Feige got together with his team to kind of plan things out. But I I, I really get the feeling that they, they haven't admitted that they didn't necessarily have a plan for phase four. Because all I've been seeing are a lot of what, you could argue as sort of failure stories. There doesn't seem to be any like thing that's connecting everything together, like you started to see after the first Avengers movie. And I I think it's also one of the reasons that it hurts the movies. They've raised this bar of this is how you build a cinematic universe. You plan it all out. You make all the movies linked together. That they kind that they've kind of are having trouble to reach that bar on a consistent level and that's one of the things that could lead to them maybe finally eventually losing the audience um because i I, like i said on a previous uh visit here before that's not going to happen overnight it's going to take years for that to happen and if this keeps happening if they don't write the ship if they don't get a consistent um big bad or whatever they have to do to uh, connect these movies I think you're going to be seeing this situation where we're seeing a lot of phase four movies uh maybe with with the exception of maybe uh Shang-Chi and uh, No Way Home a lot of phase four movies are becoming pretty divisive where there are some who say this is a low-tier movie and then there are others who say oh no this is one of my new favorites and um I think that, I agree I think that could become an issue for them down the road
3: yeah but this is the problem is In Game was you know, when you have a movie called Endgame and you save the un- half the universe, you, you can't get another big bad like that. It's like it's like Spielberg. I can't remember the quote, I'm, I'm, but he, when he was making Temple of Doom and everybody was crushing him for Temple of Doom, he's, he's like, well, look, we did Raiders of the Lost Ark and we used God to defeat the Nazis. Now what do you do? Like, there's, no, there's nothing bigger than that. What do you do now? I think that's part of Marvel's problem. Disney's got this problem with Star Wars right now, too, by the way. You know, once you've blown up the Death Star three times, now what do you do? you know, there's only so many big bads. And if you can't do some, you know, character development stuff and things like that, I I, I think they just kind of run out of material at some point, yeah.
4: I, oh, It's definitely possible. Another thing that comes to mind is uh, as someone who watches uh, anime and reads manga, that's a thing that always shows up with a lot of their properties where you, you make the threat bigger and bigger and bigger for each story arc as it goes. And you get to a certain point where it's like, how on earth can you top this? Cause it almost gets to a point sometimes where it goes from saving the neighborhood. And next thing you know, you're saving the entire universe. And which they literally, that's what's happened in the MCU. Um, so at that point, I would argue that what we, they probably should do is to try to create more insular uh, stories and, and more grounded stories. But, They've raised, like I said, they've raised the bar so high that it's going to be hard for them to meet it. Uh, Now, supposedly, again, there are reports that Feige and his team have gotten together and they've built up a a 10 year plan. Uh, I think that's pretty darn cocky, uh, considering that we don't know what's going to be in 10 years. Think about this. 10 years ago, the MCU was at the first Avengers movie. And that movie, even that movie didn't reach the heights of some of these MCU movies are hitting now. So we that's pretty cocky to know that you're still going to be relevant in 10 years. Uh, so it's going to be interesting. But I do agree that if this is the beginning of the MCU kind of winding down, we may in hindsight look back and say, mm, they probably should have ended it after Endgame.
3: Yeah, and I don't think it's going to go away. I just think it'll go from mainstream to a little bit more of a niche thing. Um, it, it's not, it's going to still make money. Let's not over. Yeah. It. Yeah. But I think that, um, My, my kid's all into that and reads that. So I know a little bit about it, but I don't fully understand it. What's the difference between something like a Star Wars and a Marvel where they have these runs and they tend to kind of burn the audience out? But then and I understand there's a huge cultural difference. so I'll put that up front. You get something like One Piece. that has been going for, what, 25 years now. Yes. You know, they they've figured out how to do that. Is it one of those things where they just don't get a circadian rhythm to it and they just build to the big thing? And then because the problem with building to the big thing is you have the big cliff on the back and they don't think about having a steady rhythm over a course of time. Is that the issue with it, maybe?
4: Well, uh, well, the thing is, is, well, one piece is also helped by the fact that they're uh, the artist and writer for that uh, Oda. He's done an incredible job of planning that thing out. And the thing is that there is a no pun intended. End game to a lot of these mangas, uh, where they they ended at a certain point. It's time to end it. If you you could argue that Avengers End Game should have been that endpoint, and what I think these mangas do better is that when they build certain things up, they and they get to the end, it's accepted. They there was recently a manga that actually surpassed one piece for a little bit there, called Demon Slayer. And it, but it ended just as it was surpassing it, and people were like, "Why not continue this momentum?" And they were, the creator was like, "Because the story's over; it's done. I have no. There's no more story to tell." And, the, and maybe the MCU can definitely learn from that. Star Wars could maybe learn from that, especially since they keep seemingly going back to the Skywalker saga. Um, I would like to see them do more other story, different stories, um, and so I, maybe they could learn from that. But something like One Piece, you know. That's one overarching story that, that he's been able to really do well with. And, but it's wrapping up. It's already been announced that this next saga is going to be the finale. So even that can't last forever. Yeah. And
3: uh, nothing wrong with stealing from the Japanese, because if people understood how much of our film comes from Kirishia, like <laughs> yeah. everything you've ever seen was stolen from those guys. Uh, one more thing before we let you go. Luis Mendez, our movie guy. Uh, we can't talk about movies without talking about streaming you did it in your latest review talking about "Eh, this movie wasn't that good they probably should have just streamed it instead of putting it in theaters Uh, back you know I'm going to show my age here you know direct the video instead of sending it in theaters this is not a new problem this is just a new spin on the problem but Netflix a lot of trouble since they lost a lot of their outside content back to the original creators because everybody's got their own platform now There's a lot of money getting thrown at the streaming sites, and it's starting to look like they're not getting the return in in investment. Amazon's got the GDP of a small country wrapped up on this Lord of the Rings show that's getting ready to come out. Uh, Netflix is still spending money hand over fist, but they did start cutting down on staff and overhead a little bit. Are we starting to see kind of the cap out on the streaming where they're going to have to adjust down to whatever the next stage of streaming is?
4: I think, I think, yes. I think it's a reaction to everyone and their mom now having a streaming service. Uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible when I find out that some of these networks are now have streaming services. Uh, it, and I think COVID uh, the, and the pandemic era didn't help uh, things either because I think it, it just accelerated uh, the trend. Uh, every uh, of everybody having streaming services now. But I think what you're seeing now is that the streaming services are now fi- figuring out more and more that they're going to have to create their own content. Now Netflix ain't Disney. Disney's got an entire library of Disney animated. I'm, I'm currently right now binging all the core Disney animated movies. I could just go on Disney Plus and watch them all. Um, HBO Max got a whole library of like stuff from Criterion and Warner Brothers and stuff like that. Netflix is trying to create their own content and they've been having and they've been struggling at times sometimes, especially with some of the money they're throwing at some of these projects. Now you're seeing it with Amazon, where they're saying where they're going all in on these big t- uh, series. Uh, Apple TV from the get go has been trying to be just driven by their content, uh, their own content. And, and they've been doing pretty well. I mean, they just literally won Best Picture at the Oscars. Um, and which I'm surprised. I, I, I was very skeptical if Apple TV would find an audience, but they, they somehow have. Well, it's probably because of the uh, the Apple fanatics also probably helped. Um, but uh, I think this is what they call the streaming wars now. It's, it's not unlike what used to be when networks were like going to war with each other and going big for ratings and stuff like that. But. I agree with you. I think you have to be careful because at a certain point, it's, you 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 spend so much money that before you know it, you're not getting much return on investment. I mean, I'm because I've been thinking about this a lot when you mentioned to me uh a, a affair of that what is it six hundred million dollars put into this Lord of the Rings show?
3: And they signed up five seasons in advance, and there's no source material. It's utterly insane what they're doing.
4: Yeah, and it's like so. I'm thinking, it's like, how do you know? How do you get a return on six hundred million dollars? How do you calculate that based on trying to make it so that this thing is so much seed that you everybody's going to be on Prime? You know, that's the kind of thing that I guess that, that they're obviously banking on. But it, I, I, all I can say is that these streaming wars are really ramping up, and I, I really think that we may have not even seen the tip of the iceberg on where these people are willing to go.
3: Yeah. And we're going to see that right now because they're renegotiating the streaming sports rights to almost everything. It's something that hadn't been talked about. That's a big chunk of money for these streamers too. Lewis Mendez. We love having him on. Hey, the movies are meant to be an escape and the way the breaking news has been lately. We love a little bit of escape, love bringing him on, love talking movies, let folks know where they can follow you, buddy. We're going to make you a regular on this show. Cause we love talking. Movies with you, especially me, because then I don't have to go see them and I know what's going on. And I can <laughs> dazzle my children with what I know about the movies. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, your excellent reviews that you do. Uh, you also occasionally write at ordinary-times.com. Let them know your social media as well, my friend.
4: Uh, well, uh, basically my main hub is my Substack right now. 100% free. Don't worry. You don't have to pay for it. Uh, Mendismoviereport.substack.com. I have all my links to all my social media there. I'm still trying to work on getting some YouTube content uh, for any big movie fans, kind of where I can show my rankings and stuff. But social media wise, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if any of you out there have a letterbox, Mendismovierpt, that's where you can find me.
3: Yeah, he does great work. We always enjoy having you. Get that YouTube going. Make sure to let us know. We'll follow it because we're big fans. Luis Mendez, thank you so much, buddy. You try. I I saw you out on the jet skis. Very Miami of you. You just yeah. you try try to tone down your lifestyle there. You're making us all feel bad about it, buddy.
4: No, no. I'm I'm out in uh St. Pete next to St. Oh, St. Pete. Pete. I'm sorry. Yeah.
3: Pete. Oh, you're on that side. Okay. I got to get down to Tampa. See everybody. <laughs> all right, buddy. Thank you for the time. You do great work, sir.
4: Oh hey, hey I'm ha- always happy to be here.
3: Yeah, you do good work. Appreciate you, my friend. Talk soon. Thanks. Uh, we're back to Hertel. Okay, let's talk gas prices a little bit. What's really going on? The White House is saying one thing. The gas companies are saying one thing. Social media is saying one thing. Let's turn down the noise on it. Let's turn to another of our great Young Voices contributors, uh, Jeff Luce. How are you, sir? Thank you for coming and spending a little time with us. Yeah, I'm doing
5: great. Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, anytime, buddy. Okay, uh, the Biden administration, you were writing a national review about this, but let, let's start big picture with what the Biden administration's done last week. I openly tweeted about it. I think they need to just fire their whole comm shop because there's been really bad on this. Um, The president, uh, I guess about two weeks ago now, wrote an open letter. I don't know how else to say it to the oil executives. Um, They are now uh, continuing the narrative about gas prices and, quote unquote, asking gas stations to lower their prices, which is not good. We had uh, the White House press secretary at the podium this past week getting kind of tangled up on the same messaging turn the noise down for us though we know that gas is a lagging indicator uh, meaning what you're seeing at the pump is something that happened six months ago 18 months ago two years ago turn down the noise for us where is this gas price increase really coming from
5: yeah that's that's a good point that's a good question um so it's it's really we're still recovering from the impacts of COVID-19 um so You know, around March or April 2020, gas, a barrel of gas um, or a barrel of oil, I should say, was literally trading for a negative value. Um, So that sent a market signal to a lot of producers that they didn't need to produce because it wasn't in their best interest to do so, Um, which of course rippled and sent another signal to refiners um, that they wouldn't need to refine any oil. And also with that, What happened was a lot of refineries also closed. So we're still feeling uh, delays with supply and demand because once economy started opening up um, after restrictions lifted, you know, you started to see demand for oil and gas spike. But unfortunately, supply wasn't able to keep up. So we're still seeing those impacts.
3: Now, to be fair to President Biden, we've we've said that this is one of our principles on this program. Uh, When it comes to the economy, the president gets too much blame and too much credit. When it comes to gas prices, that goes double. Uh, They get too much blame and too much credit. Break down the ratio, though. We understand the war in Ukraine raised gas prices. We also understand gas prices were already high before that happened. We've also we got it on video, which I don't know why people pretend this don't happen. President Biden ran on an anti-fossil fuel pledges. That means the markets react when he wins the presidency as opposed to somewhere else because they're planning two or three years ahead. Break the ratio down for me. How much of it is the Biden administration's fault? How much is not? How much of it is it's not helping, but it's not really hurting either. Just kind of lay out that ratio for us a little bit.
5: Yeah. And I, I think that's a great point. Um, you'll you'll drive through America and it's easy to see those signs of like, you know, it's a sticker of Biden pointing at the gas price and he's say, saying it, you know, I did that, um, which is ultimately unfair. It's hard to maybe put down an exact ratio. Maybe it's two to one or three to one. Um, it's mostly to do with the global impact and global markets. Um, but he certainly has some culpability with it. Uh, like you said, he ran on an anti-fossil fuel agenda. There's even a video of him uh, speaking to people in Delaware, and he he promised that he'd um, move us on from American fossil fuels. So that obviously sends a signal to producers um, that, their, that their product isn't wanted, A. Um, and then B, there are also policy implications. Um, so on his first day in office, he you know, axed the Keystone XL. He placed a moratorium on uh, new oil and gas leasing on federal lands. Um, so all of that sends a signal to producers and to investors that, you know, maybe maybe the time for fossil fuels is ending. Um, so he certainly has some blame. Again, most of it's on the global nature of things. And also with Russia, who is supplying about 10% of the, of the world's oil before we rightfully kind of embargoed that.
3: Yeah, Jeff Lewis uh, joining us from Young Voices. Let's take it from this angle because you touched on it in your piece, National Review, which we have linked to in the show notes. Everybody should read it in its entirety. The production part of this is what nobody really talks about. We all see the end game when it shows up at the pump and the gas prices. And every now and then, of course, they'll talk about crude oil prices. It's the middle of that that's really affecting all this. And part of it, and you touched on it in your piece, is refining capability. We haven't built a lot of refineries. Um, we have trouble upgrading them. That comes from our climate policies. That comes from our environmental concerns. Those are valid concerns, but this is also the trade-off. When you don't build new refineries, when you don't update your refineries, when you don't update that infrastructure, regardless of what's going on globally, you're going to have a supply problem and a production problem. And then when you have a global crisis, it goes from bad to catastrophic. Isn't that the piece of this that people are really missing?
5: 100%. Um... And crude prices make up the majority of gas prices, but refinery capacity is also really important. So in 2021, our refinery uh, capability globally, it declined for the first time in 30 years. Um, As of April, it's still well below pre-pandemic levels. Um, And another thing that has to do with that is the different types of crude. So you have heavy and light crude, both are used for gas production, um, but both require require different refinery uh, capabilities. So a majority of the uh, crude that's produced in the U.S. is actually light, um, which means there's less refining that's needed. But with that, it's sold at a higher rate to refineries. Um, So a majority of the refineries in the U.S. actually refine the heavier crude that's imported usually from Canada. Um, So like you said, if we're not investing in new refineries and the refineries that we have don't always um, aren't always tailored to the Crude that's produced here, it's going to send a ripple effect, and it's going to, you know, lag with demand.
3: Yeah, and it's not just us. You touched on it in the piece, Uh, 2021, which would be the last year we have statistics, obviously, because we're still in the current year. Uh, So those will be numbers for 2020. Global refinery capacity shrunk by 730,000 barrels. That's a that's a number that doesn't mean anything to a lot of people, but this number should. That's the first decline in 30 years. It's not just America globally, refinery capability has gone down. That puts pressure on the final product. And the gas price thing is not just an American problem, to be fair to the president again here for a minute. We've had our Australian friends on. They're having a massive gas problem. Uh, Obviously, Europe is having a natural gas problem because they get that from a... This is really a global issue when it comes to refining capability. And what we're seeing is this is just the bumping up of the modern order of where People want that cheap energy, but they want climate stuff. But then when the cheap energy doesn't go, they go, well, wait a minute, why is this happening? Why do we have that cognizant disconnect between those two things of like, look, this is the effect of 20, 30 years of policy? You asked for this, not to put too fine a point <laughs> on it. This is what you wanted to do. Now we're here. Now people are like, well, wait a minute, we didn't really mean it. Is that a fair way of putting some of this policy stuff?
5: I would say so. Um, I mean, you have Europe, like you said, they have the natural gas shortages. Um, And especially with Germany, you saw them transition completely away from all fossil fuels and subsequently nuclear energy uh, around 2011 after Fukushima. Um, So then they, you know, transition more towards renewables, but that means they have to import baseload power from Russia. Uh, So it is it is kind of a catch 22. You know, you want you want emissions reductions, which is a very noble goal. But you also need to think of consumers You need to think of energy reliability. So I think this whole global problem is really showing that, you know, in order for any really durable climate solutions to take place, you have to take into account uh, affordability and reliability. So uh, I think that's where American fossil fuels can actually play a really big role. They can um, they can play a significant role in reducing global emissions uh, by displacing dirtier uh, fuel sources. So American natural gas, liquefied natural gas, uh, it's far cleaner burning than Russian, Natural gas, it's cleaner than Chinese coal. Uh, the same goes for our petroleum and our, our oil. It's cleaner than Venezuelan or uh, OPEX. So it's it's really, you're going to need a holistic approach um, with the climate and the energy policies. And I think you know the Biden administration would do well to recognize that American fossil fuels have a really, really important role to play with that.
3: Yeah, my background is actually in transportation, and we've been using propane forklifts for 20, 30 years in warehousing and, and dock situations for that very reason. Because you can't breathe in there running gasoline. I've had to do it. Uh, Staying behind diesel fumes is not fun. Uh, but that's a great example. And Amazon bought something like a thousand natural gas, heavy trucks, tractor trailer type trucks. Uh, so it's not, you know. My opinion, we need to be all of the above on things, not just electric, but natural gas and other things. They're looking into hydrogen. We'll talk about that more. Jeff is still joining us. Um, Real quick on this before we pivot a little bit, though. Um, Talk about the signal sending. When they change oil prices like an OPEC, that's signal sending. When we change refinery capability or decrease, that's signal sending. When we change environmental policy, that's signal sending. When we change presidents in America, because If we go from a Republican president to a Democratic president, that's a signal sending to the markets. Talk about how, although these things are very volatile, there is some predictable rhythms to these based on the signals. Summer driving season prices are going to go up. Wintertime coming in Europe in the Western Hemisphere, uh, prices for fuel oil will go up. Talk about those signals and the rhythms of it that you can kind of predict some of this stuff. And there is kind of a circadian rhythm to it all, isn't there?
5: Yeah. And that's like you said, especially with summer. Um, so that's when most drivers hit the road for well-deserved vacations that they have been saving up for. Um, and same with the winter. Uh, obviously you're going to need more natural gas to heat homes, which unfortunately there's some dire predictions for Europe uh, this winter, especially with them being cut off from Russian supplies and them trying to rush uh, American LNG to the market. Um, but yeah, like you said, like, Policymakers and economists, they can kind of predict that there's going to be higher demand, especially right around now. Um, So there's, you know, a few things that they can do to bring more supply to the market, especially on the policymaker side. Uh, One thing would be, you know, suspending uh, summer blending requirements. So the way gas is blended, it's different winter to summer um, due to the heat. So summer oil or summer gas is uh, less susceptible to evaporation. But that takes more to refine. It it takes a longer process. So just suspending simple things like that could, you know, it's not going to reduce prices incredibly, but it's still going to do a little bit to, to reduce the pain at that pump.
3: Yeah, Jeff Luce joining us. We're going to talk about some of those uh, ways to reduce and or increase the pain in the pump, depending on your policy. We're also going to work through some of the cliches he touched on in his piece. Uh, things like changing the blends, uh, just drill, things like this. We're going to get into that right after the break. Jeff Luce from Young Voices uh, from the D.C. area joining us on Her Tell. More with him right after Jeff Lewis joining us, uh, climate energy. He talks about these things. He's a young voices contributor, sharp guy. Make sure you're following him the social media is right there on the lower third graphic. If you're watching on YouTube or the Facebook live feed for our big talker radio partner, uh, let's work through some cliches here because we like to turn down the noise here. There's a lot of buzzwords when it comes to fuel and energies. So let's work through some of the buzzwords and cliches and slogans and see if we can't get to some truth. You touched on one of them in your piece. Um, well, we'll just change the blend and that'll change the price on the pump. Turn the noise down on that one because people reacted pretty strongly when they started tinkering around with the fuel and ethanol blends and things like that. What's fact and what's fiction there?
5: Yeah, so especially with the ethanol blends, obviously that's a pretty big boon economically in the Midwest, um, but it's mostly subsidized. Uh, and there's been studies that have found that um, the ethanol blending really doesn't provide marginal environmental benefits, um, especially for the economic, uh, the economics of it. So as with any, you know, energy or climate policy, really any, any policy you have to, you know, assess a proper, uh, benefit cost benefit ratio. Um, so really reducing or even eliminating the ethanol mandate, um, it's not going to do much to increase emissions, especially outside of the Midwest. Um, and it, it, it is going to help a little bit with the prices, um, And same with the summer blending requirements, although it's not ideal to suspend those uh, whenever you have situations like this where people are paying, you know, in May, they paid 100 extra dollars a month on gas than they did the previous May. So this is really impacting consumers. So, um, you know, simple reforms like that, although maybe it's not ideal, uh, they can definitely do a lot to reduce prices.
3: All right. Another one you touched on in your piece, uh, Roundaboutly, uh, but I want to bring it up. Uh, I was critical of the decision, too, but people are resurrecting it in lieu of the gas prices. Uh, the day one Keystone Pipeline uh, decision by President Biden, not exactly a straight line between those two things, but people are using it that way. Uh, break that one down. What actually did it affect? What did it not affect when it comes to things like energy and fuel prices?
5: Yeah, that's I mean, that's a good point. It's it's again, one of those things. It's easy to just point the finger at President Biden. Um I mean, ideally, he would have approved it that would have sent a signal, especially to producers um, that, you know, American fossil fuels or it's not even American. I mean, it would have been imported from Canada, but fossil fuels in general have a role to play in our economy and in our energy mix. Uh, Him suspending it. I mean, it was more of a rhetorical political signal. Um, They would likely still be building it. Um, They would still have to, you know, finish the construction and the processing. Um, what it does do though, um, we're still going to be importing oil from Canada. It didn't stop that. It did add fuel and transportation expenses because pipelines are the most efficient way that we can transport fuel to and forward. Um, but now it's going to be transported on truckers and trains, which obviously it takes longer to get to market, to get to refineries. Um, so him revoking the permit for that, although maybe it's not a straight line shot, it, at the very least, it sent signals that, you know, we're not going to be too favorable towards fossil fuels, especially in the near future. And it also just delays supply coming to the market.
3: Yeah. Tanner, talk to Jeff Luce. All right. We kind of touched on this one when we talked about refining capability, but let's deal with the buzzword. Uh, a lot of folks on the right say, well, we just need to drill more uh talk about that we're not against that of course you always you know more production a long term that's a long term solution that even if you did that today that really wouldn't affect fuel prices break down the the myth and the magic of just drill baby as we used to say back in an, a previous administration uh how that doesn't does not affect prices at the pump
5: right yeah uh, it's again it's a very easy buzzword to you know say drill baby drill or to invoke energy independence but the reality is Oil, energy in general, it's very global in nature. So you increase production in America, that's great. I mean, that's awesome, obviously, economically. And, you know, like I touched on, it's also beneficial environmentally. It's produced with far fewer emissions. But uh, we would still have to rely on our partners such as Canada to import fuel. Um, we'd still be slightly beholden to OPEC, who obviously has a large share of the supply. Um, and also, as I said, it's a lot of the crude that's produced in America, although it varies, but most of it is light crude. Um, whereas a lot of the refineries that we have, are, they are tailored to uh, refine heavier crude, especially from Canada, um, just because it's cheaper to buy. Um, so it's more in their economic best interest to do so.
3: Right. Now, that was a buzzword that the right has loved for a uh, no better part of a decade now. Uh, let's talk about our progressive friends. They'll sometimes get on social media and they have the great little slogan of, well, we'll just get rid of fossil fuels. That'll solve the problem. Um, I I know that's very, very unicornish on its face, but policy wise, uh, they try to enact policy that way that has ripple effects. Just break that one down. Uh, Well, if we just go, you know, emissions neutral or get off fossil fuels, that's going to solve the problem. No, that kind of creates a couple of new problems, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Especially since the technology gap between those two things isn't quite as good as we maybe hope it would be.
5: Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're seeing that in Germany, although it's not with gasoline, it's with natural gas. Um, They said they were going to completely wean themselves, themselves off of uh, domestically produced natural gas. They shut down their nuclear plants. Um, Then they were, you know, beholden to Putin and that kind of funded his war machine, Uh, And now they're even firing up coal plants. So it's, it's all kind of backwards. So the, the push to eliminate fossil fuels, it's very unrealistic, especially when you consider um, a, the global nature of climate change. I mean, America produces like 12% of emissions a year um, globally. So, you know, if you shut down all fossil fuels here, it's going to have a negligible effect on emissions globally um, while having a pretty big consequence for consumers uh, through higher energy prices. And it's also not going to thwart any future emissions in developing countries, which is, you know, where a lot of future emissions are going to come from, especially from India and China.
3: All right. Here's another one. I've been seeing a lot more on social media. Well, why don't we just put uh, price controls on the p- fuel at the pump now quick li- history lesson for folks, Jimmy Carter took the hit for it, but the economy that he mishandled, That ball got kicked off by Richard Nixon, starting off with price controls. So you need to go read the history up on how those work. But just on its face of it, uh, the presidential magic wand of just dictating gas uh, prices—break down the mythology of that one
5: for us. Right. Uh, It's, I mean, it's it's just one of those things. It's easy to say politically. It's good to get some grounding points with your base, but again, not realistic. Um, Price controls aren't going to work, especially if you're imposing them on American. Production it's just going to hurt the situation even more. Um, Like I said, it's all global supply and demand. So if you're putting a price control here, it's not really going to impact drilling overseas. (laughs) So and it's also just the wrong approach. We shouldn't be trying to kneecap producers and kneecap our economy. We should be going the opposite way. We should be trying to embrace more free market economics to you know unleash innovation, Um, and that's through reducing regulations, uh, not imposing more.
3: Yeah, Jeff Lewis joining us. Okay, that was all the political and the rhetorical thing. Give us a couple practical things. We've we've talked broad spectrum about, you know, regulatory side. We understand legislatively probably not a lot going to get done because it's a midterm election year and the House is probably going to split and we'll have split government for the next two years. What practically can be done here? Is it regulatory form? Is it some kind of a bipartisan legislative bill coming up that the Republicans can shove through once they have a majority What do you think practically in the near term could be something that could get some relief to folks, not a unicorn, not a we're just going to magically get prices down, but would also be a good long term policy
5: as well? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's kind of like uh, kind of like herding cats, you know, you you don't quite know, (laughs) Um, especially with the bipartisan solutions. I mean, you're kind of seeing it increasingly on the left where it's they're really uh, doubling down on their anti-fossil approach, which is very unfortunate. And like I said, there's maybe not a ton of things that can be done in the short term. Um, Maybe once we see a house flip, we can start seeing some more legislative proposals, uh, one being with regulations, Um, you know, a really great first step, I think, would be repealing or at least reforming NEPA and modernizing it. So that's the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, So whenever a large infrastructure project, even if it's not just energy, it could be roads, transmission lines. You know, whenever that's proposed, it has to go through a NEPA process to see if it will have any, you know, undue consequences on the environment, which is very noble. We should be looking to, you know, leave as minimal of an impact as we can. Uh, The problem is it gets tied up in litigation and bureaucracy, so it delays projects by like an average of five years, uh, increases, you know, costs for investors, which in turn kind of disincentivizes investment into new projects. Uh, Another thing I think would be uh, eliminating steel tariffs. So just like with any industry, uh, refineries are getting hit hard by tariffs, um, which are pretty protectionist policies that haven't really benefited American producers super well. It's really just hurt consumers more than anything. So eliminating tariffs and opening up free trade would, you know, at least lower capital costs for refineries. Um, And then just another thing, too, which maybe it won't be bipartisan, maybe it can be republican-led if they get the majority in november um but that's just approving you know key infrastructure projects like pipelines you know keystone xl is a good one um you know just sending that signal to american producers that we want your energy we need your energy um and we can work together to, to help consumers
3: yeah but never say never because if if you had asked either one of us in april if gun legislation was going to pass this year we would have thought you were crazy and yet here we are public pain has an interesting way of getting stuff through Congress in a big old hurry. And there's a lot of pain on this front. So you never know. So just like to be hopeful. We, we have to be very, we we have to be critical (laughs) in what we do. So let's just throw that little lifeline of hope out there. Jeff Lewis joining us. Okay. Kind of put a bow on all this energy stuff. I don't think this crisis is going away. I know folks think the gas prices have probably pretty close to topped out or close to it. They don't think it's going to get a whole lot worse. But it also doesn't look like it's going to get a whole lot better anytime soon. Is that a fair way to kind of address the big picture, at least for the next month or two through the summer?
5: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, You know, starting to see reports that demand's starting to kind of come down a little bit. um, And that's mostly with fears of a recession. So investors are kind of hedging their bets in that sense. Um, OPEC is set to start drilling a bit more in August, although it's not a ton um, and that's kind of where the president's been, I've been kind of asking them to, to drill a bit more. So even if it's not as much as we would want, at least a little bit is going to help. Um, but yeah, in the long term, it seems like high gas prices will probably be here for a while. Um, and again, that's it's a mix of a lot of things. It's global economics. It's the invasion of Ukraine from Russia. It's some policies and some price signals, but it, it looks like, you know, gas prices might be here to stay and uh, consumers might have to get used to it for a little bit, at least.
3: Yeah, Jeff Lewis joining us. One last question on this. Um, Where does this fit into the greater political spectrum? We know the economy is going to be the number one issue in this midterm election. It's just going to be regardless. I know there's a lot of stuff about, you know, guns and violence and of course the abortion thing. It's going to be the economy. How much of the economy discussion do you think it's going to be gas prices in your research as you talk to people? as you do your media. Um, mm-hmm. I'm finding it to be really, really high because that's the one. Look, I've you know, i got a Honda Civic. I'm paying double what it cost me last year to put gas in it when I, when I got that vehicle. Right at double. Went from about 25 to about 50. This is something that hits just about every American, and I don't think there's any rhetoric to get around it. Is that the vibe you're getting as well as you research this topic?
5: 100%. Yeah, uh, polling is showing that that's the number one issue for uh voters. It's inflation and the economy and gas prices. Um, you know, we we saw some big wins with, you know, for gun control advocates. Uh and that might kind of help some Democrats um uh, and some incumbents. But yeah, it seems as if voters are definitely feeling the pain at the pump and feeling the pain in their checkbook. Uh so they're gonna they're gonna be looking for solutions that kind of curb inflation that can, you know, get us out of this economic downturn.
3: Jeff Luce, uh, great stuff today. Good job breaking down, getting through the noise of this because this topic's really noisy because it's easy to blame people when you're hurting at the pocketbook level. Uh, Until we bring you back on the show next time, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on, your social media and all that good stuff, my friend.
5: Yeah. So, um, you can follow C3 solutions who I work for. Um, you can follow us at C3 solutions news on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, and we also have an online news magazine called C3 that's at c3newsmag.com. Um, and on there, we publish op-eds reported pieces on what entrepreneurs in the private sector are doing to, you know, accelerate innovation, but also address these, you know, high, high topic issues like gas prices.
3: Yep, Uh, Jeff Luce, another one of our great Young Voices contributor, important topic. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about it more in the future. Great talking to you, my friend. We'll talk again soon.
5: Yeah, thanks for having
3: me. Wherever you are, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. Thank you for sticking with us on this special edition of Hertel. We'll talk to you next time. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.